found myself in a refurbished prison being uh, shaven, bald by a bunch of uh, Mexican special forces soldiers, the same people that turned into Zetas later on. Today's guest is the one and only Ed Calderon. Ed was a former federal police officer in Tijuana during the height of the cartel wars there. You might have seen him tell his story on Joe Rogan and Sean Ryan. He came on today to tell us all about his experience as an undercover cop in one of the most violent cities in the world. He talked about Tijuana today and where he thinks the country is headed. He exposes high-level Mexican police corruption and talks about what it's really like to battle it out with the cartels. By the way, for some of the even crazier stories we can't tell here, go over to patreon.com slash the connect show. It is the one and only Ed Calderon right here on the connect with Johnny Mitchell. Right now, what you're seeing in Mexico is targeted fights against a few specific organizations and political candidates running for presidency that have a cartel that is sponsoring them. That's when I see lights behind me start to flash. And I didn't even think, I just hit it. I was driving like my life depended on it. Then I parked the car, hopped out, closed the door, and I started running. And he pulls out a burner, shank, it's like six inches. And then he passes it to me. And he goes, here, that's yours. Don't ever leave the cell block without this. He was the reason I made it out of that place alive. I was born and raised in Tijuana, Mexico. Uh, it's a border town, rowdy. Most people know it from The Simpsons, I guess. You know, <laughs> uh, all the me. stories are true of Tijuana. So I grew up on that border, uh, Americanized. That's another reason why my English is kind of clear. You know, very Americanized. I grew up around Americans. Had some American friends at school. Uh, some deportees who grew mm-hmm. up up here and could speak very clear English and I had to translate for them at school because they were deported down and I had to figure things out. Right. So I got a lot of practice with it. It's Tijuana. If you don't have English, you're you're not going to be able to get a job, a good job. Yeah. And also a, a lot of parts of Mexico, if you want a career path, you actually have to pass a uh, an English exam. And if you don't get that, you're, you're screwed out of a degree. So it's like an essential thing, specifically on the border. That's That's where I get my English. What did your parents do? What kind of family? Uh, my my mom was, was a nurse. Uh, my mom was a nurse. She grew up in uh, she grew up in Tijuana's. Uh, some people out there might be old enough to remember a shanty town on the border called Cartonlandia. It's basically a shanty town made out of cardboard. Uh, very very hard place to grow up in. That's my mom grew up there. Mm. Uh, she became a nurse after that. After kind of getting out of that, father. And, my dad was a. Uh, my dad worked for my grandfather, a uh, family business, electrical engineering stuff. You know, okay. Completely unattached from any of the nonsense that I did later on in life. Right. Uh, very religious, Catholic. Mm. Uh, Guadalupanos, the Virgin of Guadalupe, was always at the house. You know, mm-hmm. uh, strict, lot, lot, kind of strict. Um, two brothers, bigger, older brothers. I'm the youngest. I'm the accident. You know, mm. um, pretty amazing. Uh, childhood, really. Uh, yeah, this, this is, is a privileged Mexican family, comparatively. Yeah, we we were, we were lower middle class Mexican uh, family. Uh, you know, my dad worked, my mom worked. Uh, we, we all went to school. We were we were we were doing well. Yeah, you're not ourselves. oligarchic. You're not from you know a land owning elite white Mexico, <laughs> but you're yeah. you know doing better than ninety eight. Oh yeah, of the yeah, population. yeah, yeah. Okay, so. You bring us into how you get into law enforcement. My uh, my family, I was doing great until I turned 13. 
13. Yeah. Um, my brother died. Um, a middle brother. He was 19. I was 13 when he passed away. Um, the death in the family and the death of a child does a ton of stuff to your mm. parents. Uh, and to you, you know. So that basically, when my brother died, he was like the the promised child, you know. Um, his uh, funeral was almost like a rave, you know. Thousands of people showed up. So that destroyed my family, basically. Mm. My mom went psychiatric and my da dad went alcoholic. Wow. So at 13, I had to be a grown-up. Yeah. Because there's nobody home. I mean, there were people there, but there was nobody home after that. Yeah. So I went into petty crime, you know, fencing stuff, skateboarding, mm. graffiti, uh, music. Mm -hmm. Became kind of this super independent kid, I guess. Um, started making money for myself, uh, figuring things out, getting into trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, I eventually wound up uh, trying to trying my hand at medical school for about two years and that didn't work out for me. It was like late 2000. So 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. Everything goes into toilet. Uh, experimental police force that is being developed by a man named Le Lieutenant Colonel Lizola. This time he was an unknown. Nobody knew really a lot about him. Mm -hmm. Former army officer uh, basically decided to develop a police force from the ground up. He wants to be involved in their recruitment, training, and then he wants to head them up when they're when they're out, when they're outside. And what is the idea behind that? To, uh, to basically, there at this point there is no federal police per se. There is just uh, army uh, soldiers dressed in gray riding in the back of trucks. Right. Uh, this is the federal police back then. Uh, they are trying to figure out a federal police, but it's not there yet. This is before Calderon. This is the early two thousands. So they figured that they would start experimenting at a state level. Mm -hmm. So they formed this experimental state police that I was a part of. Uh, what I thought was going to be like, uh, you know, what I thought about police academies was watching the police academy movie, you know. <laughs> and then I found myself in a refurbished prison being uh, shaven, bald by a bunch of uh, Mexican special forces soldiers. The, the same people that turned the Zetas later on. Oh, that must have been scary. These were, I mean, I, I, I don't want to say scary because they were exactly who they were made to be. Mm. You know, these were hard men mm. that were trained to do brutal work in Mexico. And they weren't about community policing. They didn't mm. give a shit about forming cops. It was... It was dehumanizing and breaking us down into our core components, basically, mm -hmm. that, from the first day. Hey, guys, just a quick reminder that I am coming on the road this holiday season to do stand-up comedy on December 14th. I'm going to be in San Diego, California, headlining the American Comedy Company. Then on December 21st, right before Christmas, I'm going to be in Chicago at Zany's Comedy Club. If you live in those cities, come out to see me. This is going to be the last time I'm going to be on the road doing comedy for a very long time. So please come on out, go to johnnymitchell.biz for tickets, and I will see you out there. Thanks. Let's get back into the episode. And what was the function of this police force? Because this was pre-Calderon. This is pre-2006. Yeah. yeah. The war on drugs haven't even, hadn't even started. So it hadn't even the... started, but it was already, 
it's already there. There's already violence going on. I, wh wh while we're going through, while we're going through training, we find out that in the same space that we were training, they just did this mass arrest of, of state police and local police there. The army showed up and picked a bunch of them up and sent them to Mexico City on, on organized crime charges. So like we know that something's going on, that some sort of effort at a high level is happening. What was happening and now hindsight, you know, being 2020 and kind of learning about some of these things now, uh, private money in Baja was fed up mm. and political influences were one-sided to a single party. So that aligned. And finally people had enough. What do they have enough of? Abductions. Okay. Uh, protection schemes, uh, violence in the middle of the street. I mean, this is two, early 2000s Tijuana and people that were around from that time can tell you about this. They were rolling down the, the street in downtown Tijuana in the middle of the day, in the middle of the night, armed uh, with AKs and shit like that. And uh, it's open convoys. Who is? These are probably, these, like, these are two criminal organizations at that time that were fighting for control of that area. This is the remnants of the of the Ariano Felix cartel back then, mm -hmm. who was trying to keep control over its its, its historic uh, dominant uh, right. controlling grounds. And one of their lieutenants flipped on them at the, at that time. Uh, uh, a man they uh, nicknamed El Tres Letras, El Teo. Uh, he was a he was an enforcer for them, and he flipped and he. He joined the Sinaloa cartel. Right. Basically taking his people with him and starting a war that raged so so bad that, you know, international attention was brought to it in right. Tijuana. Right. And it made them trying to figure out things with us to, to form right. us, basically. So essentially, and that's kind of what, I think that was made famous in one of the seasons of Narcos Mexico. And there's, there's we know a lot about that time now if you look at yeah if you're fascinated like we are with the history of yeah of, uh, the cartel battles yeah in mexico that was one of the most important eras in the in the shifting of yeah you know the yeah. the established it, power of tijuana the Ariano felix uh, had been around for what 15 or 20 years they were like oh, an yeah. entrenched yeah uh, oligarchic I, drug trafficking i grew up there and they were part of the background you know mm -hmm. you're a kid like, you saw the cars and you you knew did you know who they were? Yeah, like, yeah. Everybody knew who they were. Everybody knew who they were. Um, th it's not that every. It's not that they were hiding. They owned everybody. They owned the. They owned the head of police. They had people in politics. They had people in high level business. Uh, their kids uh, would go to school. Would go to school. Would go. Would go to some of the high valley schools with the other, with the other business owners' right. kids, and that's right. that's how you got the phenomenon. Uh, phenomenon. Uh, phenomenon of the narco juniors right which is basically rich upper middle class kids joining the cartels that's happened in tijuana because of this perfect storm right um so th they were very much in the background always you knew who they were you knew to respect them they would carry around badges you know uh some of them the federal badges they had i think the u.s found out about it at some point and actually plastered their pictures all over the border back then I don't know if people remember this, but you would see members of the high-level Ariano Felix cartel. Like you would see Ramon, Benjamin, all those guys yeah. wearing a black blazer, a black tie, and a white shirt in the uh, in the wanted posters on the border. People couldn't figure out where those pictures were from. They were actually taken from the state prosecutor's office. 
they went and got official state prosecutor IDs <laughs> as, as members of the state police in Baja and federal police IDs for official ones. They're official, not, like they're like, not bootleg. Like they, cops. Yeah. <laughs> and they found out and they found out that somehow they found those pictures and they put, plastered them on the border. So the whole city is under the thumb it's of, owned. of the it was, dirty it was, it, it, money. Back, back then it was owned. Yeah. In the nineties. That's what, that, it's relatively calm. And then, and then they have a riff with Sinaloa and that's when things start coming to the surface. I think the first major shootout in Tijuana that was related to some of that was in a, in a, next to this uh, shopping center called uh, El Mercado de Todos. It's like a, it's like a swap meet. Uh, you had a shootout between federal police and local police and basically both of them were taking care of their own cartel guys. So and, crazy. And uh, I think that started kind of like bringing stuff to the surface. And then of course they're ongoing war with the Sinaloa cartel back then. Did you have any, so you're become coming of age at this time. Did you have any friends that you grew up with who ended up getting involved, killed? Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, how did it affect you personally? I mean, I have, I have this one friend, uh, redhead kid. <laughs> we have a lot of those down there. Like Canelo, I think a, a a whole contingency of the Irish, uh, uh, an Irish contingency during the last Mexico-American War stayed down there. I, oh, I, really? I think there's like a story about that. Um, but uh, so I, I grew up with this redhead kid who was a friend of mine, a nice kid, like better fa better family than I had. Mm -hmm. You know, like you know, solid, no no tragedies. Uh, when I was when I got out and I was active. Uh, we would uh, work with the army, the federal police, uh, whatever the federal police was back then, which is basically the army as well. We'd form these, uh, they would call them grupos boom, base de operaciones mixtas, basically uh, mixed operations groups. So basically it was in all of our jurisdictions, right? Uh, and during my time working with one of these groups during the start of my career, um, I saw one of I. I saw him. I saw him. He was uh, he was working with one of the uh, with one of the the Sinaloa cartel guys uh, groups. Um, I was uh, not in uniform. I rarely was. I was uh, walking around in my civilian attire, and uh, we were doing some basically surveillance, just walking around, seeing what we could see. Mm -hmm. And we saw this uh, massive amount of uh, vehicles at this gas station. Um, so, you know, I volunteered like I usually did because I was crazy. I just do a walk by. Uh, when I did the walk by, I heard my name from among, among that group and a whistle that I recognized, you know. You know, that, that was the local whistle. You would mm. know that whistle. So he whistled at me and I looked at him and he came over and is it's my friend, Rojo, you know. Uh he's wearing a, a chest rig with magazines, AK magazines. He's carrying around this little Draco AK without a stock on it in his hand. And they're on these suburbans and Tahoes and stuff like that, just hanging out at this gas station. Uh, some of them are wearing police uniforms. You know, which I know are not real, you know, because, yeah, I, yeah. because the boots don't match and like that. Uh, um, so he like calls me over and it's like, hey, dude, what are you doing here? 
Like, ah, dude, it's like I tell him, like, my, I'm, my tongue is in my throat, you know? It's like I have a gun on me. I have a phone. I don't have anything else. Um, but he's friendly. He's like, hey, what's just, what have you been doing? Like, ah, nah, nothing, man. I'm just hanging out, just looking for a job. Last time he saw me, I was working at a, at a video store. So this is a few years back. And now we're there staring at each other. Uh, small talk about family, you know, what we've been doing. Brags about some of the money he's making now, you know. And uh, he gets a call. He has to go back. Uh, we have this side hug, you know, you do with friends. Mm -hmm. And he says... I think I know what you do. You, sh you should be careful. He says to my ear. And you should get out. You should get out of here. And I did. I left really quickly. Wow. <laughs> wow. So uh, he didn't know you were a cop. Or he, he, he knew. He, but... he, yeah. Okay, he, didn't so... know, he didn't know I was working, you know? Okay. So, yeah, let's talk a, a little bit about the different levels of policing in yeah. Tijuana. So you're, you're deciding now to become a cop. How old are you at this point? <sighs> 20 wow yeah okay i'm 20 i'm working i'm working uh, part-time with my dad i'm working at this video store uh medical school didn't work out i was depressed as yeah you know i don't know what to do with my life yeah not a lot of options there no of course not. uh either work for a call center which i tried to work mm -hmm. for one i put my i put my uh i put my paperwork in to work at one but that didn't work out not immediately at least uh, and then, uh, there's this ad in the newspaper about this experimental police force, you know? So literally created from just nothing, nothing, nothing. federal yeah. money, federal from, money from political pressure, from the elite who we, we, can't take the violence anymore. Yeah. And also a, a very smart individual at the, at the center of it, basically orchestrating all of it named Lieutenant Colonel Lizaola. Okay. He was like, he had this vision of what he needed to because they told him like he was working towards getting to a position he can do something about it. So was was the objective to root out police corruption or to eliminate cartels so, or both? Both. So he realized that you can have a group that you trusted if you pulled them from the police because everybody was on the take. Yeah. You know. So was the idea then building a brand new force from, that couldn't be corrupted that yeah, wasn't already on the take? Yeah. yeah. That was the idea. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everything goes bad after a while. Right. You know? But uh, one of the differences with us when we were recruited, for example, is that we had psychological, psychological evaluation, a very modern one, not like the ones in the past. Uh, and I had friends that went into police work before I did. And they had no, like my uncle was in, in there. So he got me in. That was how it was before. Yeah. Still is kind of in some places, I guess. But they they really did recruitment with us. Like basically, we had to pass a mental evaluation, physical evaluation. Uh, I passed all my physical cardio evaluations because I was skateboarding, so I had all the cardio in the world. Right? Yeah, I remember doing my run in Edney's shoes. You know, it was <laughs> it was great. Um, but they did a, they did a number on trying to really select who was going to work for them. Basically, FBI background checks were done polygraph examinations, um, uh, home visits. They would talk to your neighbors. Wow. That type they of want to make sure you weren't connected. You want to, want to make sure you're not connected. Your family isn't connected and that you meet the profile for who they need. What, what about you 
made you so perfect? I mean, I already can guess, but yeah, I, I guess I didn't have any boundaries back then. <laughs> you know? I was a young kid. I was really motivated. I was very energetic. I needed a purpose. They saw that I was kind of lost, I guess. Uh, you're the perfect soldier. You're, you're, you're I, like I want to like, pr prove myself. And right. that's, I think that's what they were looking for. The kid, just young people. That but you're directionless. Themselves. You have no children. You have no ties really that's a, another re, another thing that they posted that they didn't, you can be married or have kids yeah there's nothing and you're ostensibly willing to kill if they teach you how to do it i think they i'm a clean slate so they can make me into whatever they need to make me and that's so, the, the, the same thing with everybody there in this crowd of bald young wow. people how many people at the start of it it was 50 people probably around 50 at the end of it we were probably like 20 so this is an elite unit. It was a unit of people that was used. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they were weeding us out. Yeah. I thought you were going to tell me this was like, there was like 5,000 people in this new no, police force. No, it was, they, they did these, uh, they did by generations, basically. They would, first off, recruiting people for police work in Mexico is very hard because nobody <laughs> wants to be a cop. Like yeah. nobody knew that I was a cop. Like when I started, yeah. I kept that a secret. Right. Because in Mexico, that's yeah. male stripper and uh, cop. You hide that. I yeah. guess <laughs> you don't. You don't talk about it. Um, it wasn't. A, it's. 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 It had a taboo to it. Mm. The danger of it. You know. You know. You tell a chick that you were a cop. You're not gonna. Uh -huh. You're not gonna see her again. Um. So. Yeah. It. 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 Uh, it was it was a, it was a strange attempt by them. They 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 were trying to basically figure out how to create something that hadn't been done before in Mexico, mm -hmm. and but they, they were taking a lot of cues from the Americans, so it was very Americanized in the approach mm -hmm. that they were trying to take as far as confidence exams. We were even uh, certified by an American police certification program called Calia. Wow! So we were I think we were the first police unit that was certified wow. by an American uh, wow. certification process called Kalia. So what kind of training, physical training do you have? So weapons you, training. So you get there, right? Uh, head gets shaven, all your gets dumped out, you know? Uh, they make it a point to show you the door, the, the gates to the place, and they're always open, you know? It's like, ah, you know, you're not here by force. You can leave whenever you uh. want. And they keep they keep repeating that whole aspect. You can leave whenever you want. It's like you're not here, hell hostage, which makes you want to stay more. Basically, yeah. I guess. Uh, first night is uh, stripped down. They put us all in a room. Everybody gets naked, and they're looking for tattoos, like everywhere, or signs of past tattoos. So everybody is standing in this uh, dormitory, and every and these. Uh, army personnel are looking through all of your crevices, basically mm. in between fingers, lips, mm. behind ears, like everything. Uh, they're looking for any sign of affiliation, basically. While this is going on, people are recording and seeing reactions and hearing conversations and listening to as we're there. I only realized this later on when I was part of recruitment myself. Oh. Right. But they're listening to everything like any like interaction. Like, I hope they don't find this, you know, uh -huh. 
So that's there's a, there's an aspect of that throughout, like a big brother aspect right. throughout the training where they're watching, listening to phone calls, all that. And you said they actually weeded down the first 50 recruits down to 20. At the end, yeah. I assume that's because they found something. Uh, while you're while you're going through training, you know, you wake up in the morning, probably at four in the morning, you go out running like an idiot for about an hour and a half. And then you come back, take a shower. You have to eat really quickly. Uh, the first day they tell you they have, tenemos pan y verga de comer. <laughs> which means we have bread and for for, 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 for for food and and bread ran out two weeks ago yeah and it was true man the food was horrible they treated us like human garbage mm -hmm. for the first few months um it's basically meant to make you quit stand out in the sun mm. march in order and all that stuff uh there's a there's a academic component that they put in there you have to go and learn stuff and pass exams. And if you can't pass them, you get kicked out academically. Mm. So it's it's a process. It was a process. Just they, like the Navy SEALs. I don't think I don't think it's like the Navy SEALs. I think it's uh it was a desperate attempt by the by the authorities to try and create a group of people that they could trust to do a very mm -hmm. specific job. Uh they wanted to make people quit because those are the people that usually tend to break and or flip. Yeah. Right, weak-minded people. I mm -hmm. guess uh, at least that's the way it was explained to me. Uh, physically grueling yeah. stuff. I mean, uh, there was a white kid, Mexican white kid in the in the uh, in the group with me who his head was shaven, you know, and he's not brown, so he's not getting tanner with it. So he had a giant blister just materialize on top of his head. Oh my god! I've never seen anything like that before. Somehow he made it through. Um, people from different backgrounds. Uh, you had a a guy there who was a former army SF guy who fought in Chapas uh, against the SFLN. He was there. He was one of my dormitory mates. You had another guy there who came up uh, from Michoacan and he worked on a farm his whole life and he doesn't have a lot of opportunities. He can barely uh, he can barely kind of write. So we mm. were helping him out with you know. So there's there's different types of people there. You know, um, different backgrounds. Uh, different parts of the country. Uh, they just see a well-paying job for a person uh, for somebody of our age. Yeah, it was a rarity. So people are legit killing themselves to try and get that job. Yeah. Uh, but we didn't know enough about it. Like it was vague. It was nebulous. Mm. Like we're gonna, you're gonna go out and you're gonna do this. And like, but how does that work? You know, how to how are four of us going to go out there and do this type of stuff like yeah. how many of us are out there today's episode is sponsored by prize picks prize picks is the largest daily fantasy sports platform in north america they are the easiest and most exciting way to play dfs it's just you against the numbers instead of battling thousands of other players including pros and sharks you pick more or less than the two to six player stat projection and watch the winnings roll in Price Picks offers weekly promotions that can lead to big payouts like Taco Tuesday. Each Tuesday, Price Picks discounts select player projections at up to 25% to provide even more value. Price Picks even offers a reboot policy so that your entries stay in play even if one of your players gets injured. For football and basketball games, if you have a player who exits the game in the first half and does not return in the second, that player is rebooted. Amazing. PrizePix is also the only daily fantasy sports platform with an injury insurance policy. I love PrizePix because of the simplicity. I'm a casual sports fan at best, but their platform is easy and intuitive. It makes it very, very simple for me to place my projections, 
make money, and actually enjoy the sports more. Trust me, I've used a lot of these DFS platforms. Prize Picks is the one, the last platform you're going to need if you like firing on action, especially with the holidays coming up. Make some money, make some extra coin, put it in your pocket. It can't be easier. Right now, go to prizepicks.com slash connect and use code connect for a first deposit match up to $100. That's prizepicks.com slash C-O-N-N-E-C-T for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks daily fantasy sports made easy. As we went through the process and we started kind of seeing some of the older guys that would come back to the academy to show us what was going on, right. it was then that it dawned on us how serious that we were about to go into was um when we were handed our life insurance policies by metlife and we're told that we were about to do the most dangerous job on the planet the most dangerous city on the planet by numbers probably uh our our stomachs kind of sank a little bit Mm. you know signing those uh health uh, life insurance policies which they don't have now by the way which is pretty fascinating we'll talk about that this current state of affairs of that group now um that it was it was apparent by the older guys coming back telling us they, they don't give us they don't give us rifles we don't have enough guns for everybody uh that we're getting like uh two of our guys got killed uh, on the roadside and then then they, like the support lasted like two minutes 20 minutes to get there we start hearing the stories about underfunded underequipped. yeah like what are we getting into mm. like we're in there trying to figure it out um, by this point, the guy that originated this program, Lieutenant Colonel Lizola, he wasn't in charge of the people outside. He was just building up the tra- building up the basically the pool of people he was going to draw from. Uh, we graduate. We get a radio, uh, a gun. What um, kind of gun? In the academy, they show you how to shoot it. 92 uh, uh 92fs beretta okay pistol it's a nine millimeter gun 15 rounds you shoot 10 rounds out of it at the academy in training and then when you graduate you get handed a glock <laughs> which i'd never seen in my life so I, I didn't know how to operate it i had to go on wow i got go on go online to figure that out you know <laughs> um and then we're off uh graduation day uh Heads up, um, everybody Everybody in the group that survived this experience. And when I say survived it, uh, sexual assaults happened during training with some of the female candidates. Ooh. And some of them had to leave because of that. By the staff or by the other by the recruits? Staff, by the staff. Um, there were some instances of like, I don't, pe- people stateside might not, even in the military, they don't realize how much brutality can be done in training down there. Mm. I mean, I got, I got an AK shot near my face yeah. to simulate reality. Uh, How was, loud is that? The, the first round is pretty loud and the rest you don't hear. You don't hear because you're, <laughs> you're, you're underwater, gone. basically. Wow. Um, I still have hearing loss on one ear because of that. Uh, physical beatings. Physical beatings. Um, what is it, the lack of empathy in Mexico that I've, I find really disturbing because Mexicans on an individual level are some of the coolest, friendliest people. I yeah. swear to God, it's, it's like, it's not a racist thing. It's, it's just a fact. Like 
they're, I, they're incredible human beings, the spirit, but like collectively the, it's such a brutal country. I think it's part of the genetic memory that we have from one, the culture that was already here when the Spanish came and then the Catholicism that was put in on top of it, basically. Mm. You know, people want to talk about the times when, you know, the Mexica and the Aztecs were here and like a, like a, you know, Lord of the Rings, beautiful elven time where everything was perfect in Mexico. Yeah. They killed the shit out of people. Yeah. Skinned people alive, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. sacrificed a bunch of people. The Spanish didn't take down the Aztec empire. Their enemies did that were there and allied themselves under the Spanish. That's who took down the Aztec who were, empire. Who were those people? Uh, who were those you, groups? A bunch of the, a bunch of the tribes around the Aztec yeah. that hated them because they were, uh, they were oppressors. The yeah. Aztecs were, an oppressive force uh -huh. in the region. So right. that's how they're taken out. Something about that mixture probably is mm -hmm. what is at the core of some of the stuff in, in our culture, I guess. Right. Um, at least, at least for the, um, at least for the training aspect and what we went through, this is before phone cameras. Yeah. Right. This is before anything of that nature, that, that type of training was even done, I think in Mexico. Uh, so there was no references to something mm. like that. So things were done, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, let's figure out that let's figure this out on the go. Basically yeah. it was, uh, and a lot of people, instructors were fired. You know, a lot of people, uh, instructors didn't show up the next day and you're like, I wonder why didn't he, why he didn't, why he didn't show up. Yeah. Um, it was a free for all in training there. It, it was, uh, it's not so when you say that it's like Navy SEALs. No, it's not like the Navy SEALs. It's like uh, it was almost like a clandestine training of a, of a sort. You know, they were trying to figure out how to freak us out, how to show us how to operate in urban areas. They would bring in people that had experiences that were outside of the realm or scope mm -hmm. of what I thought policing was. Mm -hmm. You know, how many? So, so you graduate. How many? Uh, what do you, what, what do you call yourself? What kind of, I'm just, I want to know we how were, to refer so you, your we, type we, of we, cop we, as. We were, uh, we were members of the operations group is what we were called. Operativos. Okay. How many operativos were there in Tijuana actively that, at the that's time? That's probably 200 maybe okay. at the most. So what was your first objective? Basically we were spread in the, we were spread around the city in these groups. We, uh, some of them uh, as, you get to the office and you're like, you, 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 you go there, you, you go there, you, you go there. Uh, basically, it would divide us up into these groups with the, we we're working with the army. Mind you, the army isn't in the drug war. The drug war hasn't started back then. This is right. 2004. So they don't know what they're doing really. So they needed somebody that had arresting powers or somebody that knew their way around the area to basically work with and coordination uh, with. Right. So that a lot of the first work that I did was that type of work when I got out. Although my first, very first job, was my very, very, very first job, <laughs> the very first day, I was yelled at by one of the older guys, go get the uh, old cutters. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna go on a raid or something like that, right? So I run, I run, get my gear, get the bolt cutters, get a battering ram as well. I think I got too much. It's like, what are you bringing that for? It's like, we're going to go on. We're going to go out, right? Yeah, but we're going to go cut off somebody off a bridge. This is your first day? This is my first day. So I get in the car, you know. I don't know what to expect. Uh, he's one of the older guys. 
she's probably screwing one of the uh, forensic ladies. So this is like a weird favor. Like later on, I realized what it was. So we're driving there. We get there. Um, it's a pedestrian bridge. And there's a, there's a guy hanging from a like electrical wire tied to his leg. Yeah. Uh, he's tied by a single leg. His other leg is kind of crossed over like a, like the tarot card of the hangman almost, mm. you know, young kid. Uh, probably strangled with wire, uh, plastic on his face and duct tape. Naked? Uh, the Narcomanta was gone, so I didn't get to see that. Uh, Narcomanta is the, the banner? Yeah, basically they leave banners behind as a way to communicate to their rivals or just as for people to read them. Basically, it's a, terror, it's a terrorist act of the highest degree. Uh, so I get there, I climb up, climb up out there with the bolt cutters try to figure out how to cut them down because it's not just cutting them down, it's cutting them down safely, you know? So right, because you can't just clip them, then it'll just fall down onto some pedestrian yeah, car. So we try to pull them up and a, a dead body is heavier for some reason, you know? Uh, <laughs> dead so, weight. <laughs> dead weight. I'm doing all this and I'm like, you know, in my mind, it's dawning on me where I am and what I'm doing. Um, we uh, put a flat bag bed under and just lower him down. Uh, I get down and I'm with my friend who's exchanging phone numbers with this forensic lady. You know, he, he did his thing, I guess, with that favor. And I'm there in shock and horror. And he's smoking, <sighs> jaded. Just look at him. He's like, what's wrong, new guy? <laughs> it's like, this is horrible. This is horrible. Yeah. Said, so, no, they're this is this is they're being kind. And I said, I, I I didn't register this whole they're being kind thing. Like, what do you mean they're being kind? Yeah, most most families don't get a body to cry over. So the fact that they left them a body is an act of kindness. So what would they do when they were being mean? They would put you in caustic soda and make your bodies appear. Yeah. So so the fact that they gave them a body to bury was yeah. an act of kindness. So what were the stats at the time in 2004? How many murders were happening in the war every day? And I have no, I don't know the numbers, but we were the most dangerous city on the planet at that time. Mm. That so, was on the top of the list. Yeah. And it was mostly, I mean, uh, that just a uh, regular night was like five, six mm. bodies in different parts of the city. And those uh, are the bodies they found. The, the bodies found, you know, the, the usually bodies found had some sort of messages on them. On top of that, you would have the forces appearances, you know, people that you never find, you know, mm -hmm. and then the abductions for ransom, which were a rage back then made a bunch of the businesses, business owners in Tijuana basically move up to places like uh, San Diego. Right. Uh, there was a massive exodus of people. I mean, it was like every night they would go out and abduct a few. And, and why was that? Is it because they needed money? Because wars are, cartel wars are so expensive? Yeah. I mean, so you imagine you have this band of people with these, this mission of taking control of Tijuana from this historical uh, owners of Tijuana, the Ariana Fias cartel, which at this time is being diminished slowly by some of their, their efforts. So these guys would go out at night 
And the only exposed element of these organized crime organizations sometimes is are their sales points. That's the only thing that you could see or you can't you can't really hide. So most of the murders you would see every night in Tijuana back then and you now are related to sales points. To explain what a sales point is. So these car- cartel, th- th- these cartel organizations, yes, they dedicate themselves to transnational cocaine and mm-hmm. other drugs across the border into the United States, but they also maintain and run local drug markets in Mexico. Um, so that's important because we're led to believe that it's just America causing the violence in Mexico because no. of our demand for drugs. No, 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 no. But there's actually a real robust domestic drug demand in Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a, there is a very, a large part of the violence in Mexico is related specifically to these criminal organizations controlling and maintaining control of a territory. Mm. And in this territory, anything that happens that is of an illicit nature has to go through them or is taxed by them. This Mm. is how it works. And if you have a rival group moving into your territory and you're a ninja that hides from the government and I can't find you specifically or you have a lot of security, how can I start affecting your business? So the way they would do this, specifically this, uh, these Sinaloa cartel guys that, would, that came in to try and take down the Ariano Felix cartel is that they targeted their sales points, obviously, which is something that still to this day is still happening. Um, the names have changed, though. It's New Generation Cartel now mm-hmm. against the Sinaloa cartel, but mm-hmm. it's kind of the same game. So you can attack them directly. So you attack their sales points. You kill the cops that are on the take that work for you, that work for your rival. Mm-hmm. That's why you get a lot of murders of cops. Right. I'm, it's not because they were just doing their job. Some of them is because they were working the other side. Uh, you would burn businesses or affect businesses that were under your under the rival's protection, mm-hmm. if these paid protection rackets. So this is how you get this, these cities, these cities all of a sudden just getting into chaos, you yeah. know, uh, the local dominating cartel getting challenged by this other incoming cartel mm-hmm. and they start causing havoc. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what you see now in places like Tijuana. Tijuana is nicknamed San Diego South now. The majority of the marijuana trafficking is happening from San Diego to Tijuana now. <laughs> I've heard that. Which is hilarious. How amazing is that? Beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. Um, But uh, with that, the American drug market that usually that was that was on that side of the border in San Diego is now in now living in Tijuana. Meaning Americans Americans are moving to Tijuana. 90 percent of all new housing in Tijuana is being bought up by Americans. Do you view that as a positive thing? It hasn't been for locals mm-hmm. because gentrification, Americans right. have experience with gentrification. It's the same thing yeah. down there. Uh, local drug markets are being grown and brought with them, basically. Mm-hmm. They, there's more yeah. people there to consume there. So that's yeah. going to be an issue. So economy is booming, though. So people, some businesses are doing better and Tijuana yeah. is doing better as a whole economically. Yeah. But security is, it's mm-hmm. it's back to I was I was just at a security conference with my old boss and they're asking him to come back and he's asking he wants to get the band back together basically. Right. Um it's that desperate now again. Wow. What is the difference in the drug trade, the kind of drugs obviously we know 
about fentanyl. Everybody knows about fentanyl, but like, what's, what's the situation with the cartels? I know it's the CJNG versus. So there's a, there's a bunch of cartels in Mexico, right? In uh, Tijuana specifically. In Tijuana specifically. There's a bunch of cartels in Tijuana specifically too. Mm -hmm. Like a cartel could be like 50 people, you right. know? So there's a bunch of groups like that out there, but you know, uh, the biggest two ones are the new generation cartel who's basically taken over and or absorbed remnants of what the Ariano Felix cartel used to be. Um, they are different in the way they operate. Uh, these are militaristic individuals that operate in militarized ways clandestinely. Mm. They'll go into a town, they'll kill the they'll, they'll kill kill every single police officer that works for the other side because they come they've done their intelligence before they get there. And then they'll recruit the rest. And they'll take on the the next town and the next and the next. They're brutal. They're not they're not about the life. They're not about the the hats and the pointy boots and stuff like that. These, the the guy that they have a tendency to recruit former police officers, mm -hmm. former military. Mm -hmm. It's a they're just different. It's a different type of organization. That's on one side, and on the other side is the. And it, there's just no other way of calling them, but what used to be the Sinaloa Cartel Federation. Right. We can we can say that mm -hmm. you know, which was actually born in L.A. So we can't call it the LA cartel, but they were probably born in LA. They learned their tradecraft up here. But you have these two organizations in Tijuana right now fighting out for control. And with the Sinaloa cartel, you see the Chapitos faction mm. who are currently being taken apart. Decimated. Decimated. So, and then you see other factions of the same Sinaloa Federation who are not being touched. Mm. So it's 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 a, it's a strange pair. It's a strange thing right now. Do you think uh, it's more chaotic now than it was back in two thousand four, in terms of uh, the the splintering of power? I mean, yes. I think I think uh, so. This is I think what makes it worse now. What makes it worse now is that there's absolutely no political effort left to fight some of these criminal organizations as like a blanket fight. Right now, what you're seeing in Mexico is targeted fights against a few specific organizations mm -hmm. and political candidates running for presidency that have a cartel that is sponsoring them. Come again? You have political candidates in Mexico that have a, a sponsored cartel that is behind them. Now, Ed, that is quite the statement. That's quite the accusation. That's not an accusation. That's like a <laughs> like a that's an open secret. That's yeah. a fact. That's a no, fact. No, no, of I mean, course. That if you know anything about Mexico? You know that uh, you know the government's been it, it, all the way up to the president. So, so taking like, bribes since like the nineties. People attack me online saying that I'm like hey, you're a corrupt cop and you're part of the whole problem like that. Yeah, I was part of the problem. You know, I worked for the government in Mexico and I thought they were on the up and up and mm -hmm. in, in in their hole. But realistically, there's always segments of the government that have an interest at a high level. So imagine this. I was put on all of those, you know, countermeasures to keep me honest, you know. Mm -hmm. And the guy at the very top, Martinez Luna, the boss of bosses of all security operations in Mexico, who was put in front of by Felipe Calderon. 
is now under federal arrest here because right. he was working for this, you know, right. law card, working for members of the familia. Right. And uh, I mean, uh, what's his cartel's name? I forget. Beltran Leva. Uh, they, they, they were working for the, the yeah. Beltran Leva organization. Yeah. And not only that, but like other factions of the army in Mexico are all working on an angle. We recently went like, and if people want to research this, and I really would advise people in the U.S. kind of look into the Wakamaya Leaks. Wakamaya Leaks is our, was uh, was Mexico's version of the WikiLeaks situation. <laughs> right. They leaked a ton of Sedena documents. This is the this is the army, the Mexican mm -hmm. army. And in these documents, they lay out how things work in Mexico mm. through their intelligence services. Uh, this military outpost favors this cartel on this region. This military outpost favors this cartel. Uh, this political organization is tied to this cartel. This state governor is tied to this cartel. It reveals all these things in these documents wow. that are in the open for people to, if they wow. want to research them. So it's, it's not a secret that Politics and government in Mexico is very much tied, if not, you know, at the hip with the cartels. Of course. And I think that's that's pretty common knowledge, even though just hearing it from such an insider, you never it never stops giving me chills. But why why are there still these big headline busts? Right. Like, obviously, we know Sinaloa. Let's just take them because they're a legacy now. They're probably the oldest cartel besides the guys on the east in Mexico. They're clearly paying some very high level politicians. They're sponsoring probably a new candidate for president. Yeah. Why are the Chapitos being taken down and given over to the DEA, though? I don't know. So this is this then this is from observation. I'm I'm not active anymore. I have friends who are, mm -hmm. and they keep me informed on things. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to be a concentrated effort against specifically the Chapitos, right? right. That started from all the way from El Chapo Guzman, yeah, who was never really the head of the Sinaloa cartel. Right. This is all words that makes Americans feel. You know, we got them, you yeah. know, and make us feel warm inside. But <laughs> no more drugs. <laughs> none of that is probably true. Uh, at some point, there was a rift in that organization with his arrest mm -hmm. and the way that, that, that his sons basically took control of the business that have been counter to the ways that the status quo has classically been handled in that region right. with that organization. Right. So I think they tried to do their own thing. Uh, and... It never goes well in Mexico if you go against the grain. No. And mind you, we have a president who just went for the fifth time uh, to El Chapo Guzman's hometown to inaugurate a road because that's what he does a lot out there. This is the fifth time he goes out there. Wow. Barriahuato? Yeah, La, La, La Tuna. Yeah, La Tuna. In, the, in the mountains of in La Tuna. Sinaloa? He's, yeah, he's been there five times during his presidency. Why would you go? It's a tiny little town with nothing going on. It's very strange. He's been there five times during his presidency, and the last time was recently to inaugurate a road. And after that, El Nini was arrested. Wow. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's like the craziest game of... So, so, so for me, so I'm Mexican, and I'm now up here as a permanent resident trying to figure things out as a as, as, as an American, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, I see 
I see a Mexico that is basically on its way to be a military dictatorship with a narco base. That's what I see, I guess. Interesting. You, you see, see that you see democracy, you see actually there's no there's no there's no there's no political rivals to the current ruling or in a party. And they're the liberals? They are the very party? to the left, yeah. Uh -huh. So Morena is uh, is basically to the left of a political spectrum. Mm -hmm. uh, Mexico went through, you know, two years of the right and yeah. then middle yeah. and then went straight to the left. Isn't that fascinating? Is, and the left, and they're, they're paid by the biggest capitalists, yeah. you know, so, uh, so, so, on the planet. Yeah, and, and it and it and it shows like uh, news, news recently. Uh, uh, trans uh, federal judge gets murdered by his uh, his partner, and that's that's like the the news is that he's trans. Oh, and that's like the focus of it. That yeah. there's some sort of conspiracy to kill trans lord, uh, judges in Mexico, and it wasn't like a just that they killed each other in domestic violence issue. Right, that, that's right. what happened. But that's like the wokeness of Mexico is moving in that direction, which is fascinating for a Catholic country like Mexico. The wokeness this, is growing. Wow. So, so you, you see this like ultra left wing. It's, it's coming out of central Mexico. Power. It's an ultra. Yeah. And it's uh, taking over across. But, the country. It, but it's coalescing with criminal forces, criminal organizations, to what ultimately like so, suspend the constitution? So on the left, their mindset is there's no problem if you don't make it a problem. So they said abrazo no balazos, you know, hugs not bullets. Uh, there is no cartel problem. There is no cartel war. It's just, it's just like it's it's right. gone. You know, recently what you're seeing though is the army kind of trying to reivindicate themselves. This is what leads me to think that they might have some sort of independent action going on. So. El Nini, mm -hmm. his, his arrest, one of the first things they stated when he, they arrested him, he was caught without security, unarmed in his underwear at his house with some sort, somebody ratted him out, obviously, yeah. you know, he was very comfortable where he was. Um, the first things that they, the first thing that they said as far as why he was captured was that he was, he participated in the liberation, the first liberation of Otapo Guzman's son when he was arrested. And that he ordered the shooting of the families, the military families barracks in Sinaloa. So they went after him as a like a vengeance thing. Yeah. Right? So that was one high-level arrest that happened. And then a few days later, the arrest of this new generation cartel head in Jalisco. Uh the El Tres, number the number three in the in the in the power structure for the new generation cartel. He was involved in the abduction of a colonel. So both of them have like a military, like a vengeance from the mm -hmm. vengeance from the arm, Mexican army kind right. of revindicating their self yeah. and their power in the region, I guess. So that's what leads me to believe that there's some sort of, you know, we're in charge thing going on with the, with the Mexican army, basically mm -hmm. kind of like um, making some of these high level arrests. And also it's election season. Mm -hmm. We just, we just kicked off presidential elections. Mm -hmm. uh, the candidates are out. And coincidentally, we have these two major arrests. So you think uh, you think the left wing government will stay in power? 
it's it's what's it's what's most optimal for the for the for the Mexican army. Okay, who is actually at the base of the power in Mexico? The Mexican army. Yeah, I, 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 that's what I that's what you're seeing right now. They're uh -huh. getting all the contracts for the airport. Uh -huh. They're getting contracts for trains, building uh -huh. all airspace in Mexico is now militarized. Wow. So like all these things are leading yeah. the, the Guardia Nacional, the National Guard units yeah. are at the uh, points of entry into Mexico. Yeah, I noticed that. So there's there's no more like customs officials. It's right. just the, it's, it's their army guys dressed in white. Right. And they're at the airports as well. Mm -hmm. So if people don't see the fact that these guys are taking over Wow. In, in the civilian realm, yeah, wow. I don't, I don't, I don't think they, they're, I don't, I don't think they're looking hard enough. I guess. So you think that leads to, again, some kind of suspension of civil liberties or, or, or the constitution, or what's the worst case scenario? Like, where could that, where could that go? Venezuela. Wow, wow. <laughs> so you have, <laughs> imagine that. Imagine right next that. door. So for me, it's like it's it's scary because of what it could invite. Uh huh. You know, let's let's be clear about this. Mexico is currently in a very advantageous position. Totally, it's it's the next China. If it, I if agree, it, if it had the right leadership, yeah, but it doesn't. I'd much rather produce stuff in Mexico if I'm a factory uh, owner. And also another thing that people don't realize that a lot of Mexican companies actually have production in the U.S. Wow. So like, uh, there's a vehicle glass company that has production facilities that's from Mexico that has production facilities in the U S and so we're basically tied together as yeah. a, like NAFTA tied us together years ago mm -hmm. and we're all part of the same thing. Right. Um, China's all over Mexico. The Chinese influence is all over Mexico specifically, uh, related to its ports, you know, related to one specific cartel, the new generation cartel mm -hmm. seems to be mm -hmm. a proxy of this government, I guess. They're, they're the only ones that didn't have fentanyl supplies cut to them during COVID. Right. They, they, they had no supply issues. Yeah. Wow. So it makes you think. But, uh, and those are your, the U.S.'s main rivals on the global stage. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't it make sense for China to basically use Mexico as a, of course, as a tire fire underneath sure. you? Sure. Yeah. So, I just got to take a minute uh, because I'm fried. I'm exhausted. I've been working really, really hard, traveling, doing podcasts, doing stand-up. So when I just need a minute, but I can't drink any more coffee, I need a real boost, I go to Magic Mind. See these little shots? These are nootropic energy shots uh, that boost your immune system. Uh, they've got matcha in it, uh, agave, uh, adapt adaptogens, uh, which help you relax. And again, nootropics which keep you, keeps you focused. Two fluid ounces of this. I like mine ice cold, okay? And it's delicious, by the way. It's got all of these yummy flavors, okay? Mm. Made in Venice, California, Los Angeles, my hometown. Uh, and yeah, they're just like, I drink one of these, and I just laser focus in. Like, it's like taking natural Adderall. I can just, you know toss one of these down my throat and I'm good to go for hours afterwards. It's got about like a 60, 60 milliliters. No, 65 milligrams of caffeine in it too. So it's like, it's like having a half a cup of coffee. You don't feel jitters. Um, it's tremendous. You guys, I cannot recommend them enough. Magic mind. If, uh, if you are like me, hardworking and need a focus and a boost 
at the beginning of the day, the middle of the day. Go check them out. Magic Mind. Uh, thank you so much for sending these over. Yeah. Let's get back to, you know, when you're on the ground dealing with, you know, the the lowest rung of this gigantic, almost faceless beast that yeah. is, a, you know, a Mexican criminal organization. Yeah. How often were you cutting people down? Tell tell me about your first couple of months on the ground in uh, as part of the uh sure, the sure. organization. Yeah. So I mean that first day, you know, cut cutting this this dude off a of a bridge and realizing that that was kindness in the environment that I was now in. That kind of like really soaked into me. Um the lack of equipment. This is Mexico. They're not gonna give you, you know. <laughs> So I, uh, I went to this, we went to this house and it, it was, uh, they killed two municipal cops and they ran and one, some of them ran to this house and we found this house and that house led us to another house. And it was basically, it's basically like a rat's nest, you know, one thing leads to another. Um, so we go to this house in this uh, very upper, upper class neighborhood in Tijuana. And I'm walking towards this door uh, with the army with me. Uh, they're all dressed in uh, coyote tan, you know. Yeah. And I'm the only idiot that is doesn't not jeans and a t-shirt and a, a plate armor on me and uh, an AR. So walking towards this door, uh, we hit it. Uh, we're using uh, chains and a hook to rip doors off or or just sledgehammers, basically. <laughs> to get into these houses. Uh, I don't see any documentation that makes us or authorizes to be any there, but we're with the army and I guess that's enough, you know? So I'm just running with those guys. Uh, we go into this house. Uh, second, we go up the stairs. Uh, reports of armed people hiding there. There's a bunch of mattresses on the ground. It's a safe house. Wow. Right? It's a safe house. Uh, there's a baby, baby monitors that were improvised into like a makeshift surveillance system for those guys, you know? Uh, so we get there, but they're not there. You know, they got wind of us. Mm -hmm. There's a, there's a ladder in the back, you know, right. these guys are gone. Yeah. Uh, go upstairs. I have training and I have protocols. So we start doing site exploitation, you know, basically seeing what's their documents, cell phones to collect them all in a bag and yeah. take them to give them to the intelligence guys. Yeah. And I start noticing that the army guys are not anywhere to be seen. So I'm just doing that. And then I walk into this room, this next room, and it had, have you seen the movie Predators? Yeah, of course. Uh, Predators 2 with no, Danny Glover. I stopped after the first one because it was well, so good. At the start of the movie, there's this, uh, this scene where they're in a shootout here in LA and they go into this armory that's just covered in guns all over the place. That's the room I walked into. Holy it was just a armory. Uh, 50 cows, Barrett's, like on a wall, uh, ARs, AR parts all over the place, magazines, AKs, you name it, it's there. It's just. And here you are, the, the, the most, supposed to be the most incorruptible. Uh, We're supposed to be the tip, officer. tip of the spear with an AR 15, a semi auto AR 15 Colt with a, with a suitcase uh, strap on it yeah because i didn't have that's a, it that's it and a, and a magazine in my back pocket an extra magazine a 20 round ma extra magazine in my back pocket i look at all this 
and I start taking pictures of it, you know, it's like, ah, this is like evidence. And some of the army guys just bumped me over and start grabbing magazines. Might as well. <laughs> You're like in a war. Yeah. You, you, I, you, you find the weapons. I, so I'm like, take them. yeah. So some, some of them start grabbing magazines and, and sights from the rifles. That's why, that's why when you ever see the cartel guys show their, like, we got all these rifles. Yeah. But none of them have like sights and stuff like that. Yeah. Because they get taken. <laughs> Oh wow! So 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 the military, if they hit a raid, if they raid a bunch of guns, military, they'll strip off everything cool from the rifle. Right, they'll leave the rifles, but take all the the, all the accessories, expensive accessories. So being in that room, like everybody's kidding up, basically. Did you get? Did you grab a couple? Everybody's kidding up. You know, everybody's kidding up. Everybody. Would you take? Everybody's kidding up. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So. this is why I realized that the, the rules don't apply here. Is is this this is a weird place? Yeah, uh, I go downstairs and they're all eating abalone out of cans that they found in the kitchen, and I'm like, this isn't this isn't bizarre. This is a bizarre space to be in. And I pile with them in the back of their home, and just go off to the next house. Um, it Did- was it it, it uh, kids mostly are on the on the other side of this. Like the guys that we're working against, yeah. kids, uh, American gang members, like people that were brought in from yeah. the LA gangs. Right. Uh, this Conejo was an right. example of, of that. Of course. You know? Of course. Uh, so you're, you're seeing all these uh, kids that are being kind of recruited and brought mm-hmm. into basically form these cells mm-hmm. that were spread out all over the city. And they're not making any money, real they're money, make, right? Yeah, they're making garbage money. Yeah. You know, basically there's a cell leader and he hires a bunch of kids. They'll sleep over at a house like that and they'll be called to, hey, you go and hit this place or mm-hmm. go and pick up this guy or do this or mm-hmm. do that. And they're spread out in the city so they can, whoever's in charge can call whoever whoever's closest. Right. And they don't talk to each other. So if you got one cell, you have no idea what the other cell's right. doing. And the the cell leader, is he actually a member of the cell the, leader? Yeah. The organization? The cell leader usually is a member of the organization. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. whenever you would get a group of people mm-hmm. you would always look for the oldest right that's one way right right always look for the oldest to see leadership or see who had more the most money in his pocket uh see who had jewelry on right uh this is right at the dawn of social media uh-huh. so we, we would also kind of look at them in that way as well what do you think the survival rate is for a kid in in one of those cells not much man it's pretty like low, I, right? I got to see them a few times. The p- people that would get grabbed once or twice. Yeah. And then find them finally, you know? Right. Do you remember finding bodies of kids that, oh, I raided his house yeah. two months ago? There was a there was a very big one. Uh, 12, 12 of them were, were left on the on the roadside, uh, all young, all from the same block. It was basically, they took out a whole generation of kids from a single block wow. who were working for the other side. Right. And uh, what do you mean they left him by the roadside? Uh, Decapitated or just shot up? So the the main method of uh, of executing them mm-hmm. back then, I don't know if it's I don't know. It's they were probably murdering the, murdering them in safe houses across the mm-hmm. city. So no gunshots. They were usually strangled with wire. Suffocation and strangulation was usually the murder. Uh, the, the way that they would kill some of these guys or they would just lay them on, on the side of the street and hit them and shoot them in the back of the head mm. one by one, which is a mixture of that is what happened that night. Mm. 12 of them. 
the oldest was, I think, 19, and the youngest mm-hmm. was like 15 or 14. All men, mm-hmm. all, all kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, underwear, left on all of them. You know, that's all. Yeah. Um, these, the, this, this, is, this is who was fighting you, you, uh, back then. Not all of them. Every now and then you would find like hitters, you know, like professionals. Okay. Every now and then. Do you, remember, were, do you remember the first hitter yeah. you met where you like, oh, this guy's different? Yeah. Yeah. What was that like? What happened? <sighs> this is, it's a, it's this, it's this wild shootout that happened. Uh, uh, it's, it's La Zona Norte area of Tijuana. It's right on the border. Mm. Uh, guys selling cocaine or something of that nature. I'm not too sure about the details. I, I wasn't there for that part of it. Uh, somebody shows up, tries to kill him because it's a sales point. He makes a run for it. And, uh, while he's running, they're shooting and gunning and they're shooting a bunch of people that are just there, you know? Um, and then he gets into a car drives uh, it isn't his drives to another house that's when he gets his grabs a rifle a a backpack and comes out engages these four guys and kills them wow then he gets into his car flees from the police and kills two cops on his way on his (laughs) fleeing out and gets away and gets away finally uh finally he uh he gets into a wreck he rolls his vehicle it's all mangled up. Uh, he's handcuffed to a, a Red Cross gurney. And we walk in. I'm walking with a subdirector. I'm his bodyguard. But also, I'm basically I'm part of his group. So we walk in there. And this guy's a serious-looking mother. You know, looking at us, like, suspiciously. Uh, we already got, gone through his phone and everything. We went to his place, so we knew a lot about him mm-hmm. already. Uh, he's a former Mexican army. Uh, wow. Former Mexican army. Uh, Gafe guy. Uh, Gafe is a Grupo Aeromobil de Fuerzas Especiales. Basically, uh, an aeromobile group that was formed probably in the like late 80s, uh, early 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a, a special forces unit, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy had books in English and Spanish at his house. So he's bilingual, you know, uh, he had his rifle sighted, you know, Mm -hmm. he had, um, um, marker marks where the screws were, that were put to tighten on the site of the optic. So he had training as far as shooting, shooting at a distance and precision. Uh, he's a killer. It's a professional killer. How often or how common was that? Every now and then it would show up. Do you remember Zeta's yeah. uh, incursions into the city while you were on the force? They 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 uh, were part of a, a breakout from the Tijuana prison. Uh, they broke out a, a few cartel members. I'm not too sh- I'm not too sh- sure about the details back then. At some point in the mid 2000s, there was an allyship within the prison system of members of the Gulf cartel, members of the Zetas and the Ariano Felix leadership, because all the leaderships that were arrested were housed in the same federal prison. So at some point there was some sort of weird friendship struck. 
So the Zetas sent a contingency of, a contingency of, of their men to break out some people from the Tijuana prison during that time. Were they successful? They uh, dressed like doctors oh my God. for it. Uh, they showed up in an ambulance. They, um, on the inside, they had weapons already there. So it was... How it many was, people did they have to kill to get the kingpins out? I think they, I think they took out like five, uh, maybe three or five. I'm not, I don't remember exactly, but at least one of the, one of the guard towers that was there was shot completely up. Nobody, nobody put up a fight. No, no, nobody put up a fight. And then you, you would see the shot. People can probably look up some of the pictures from that breakout online. Mm. Uh, you'll see the guard tower pictures and you'll see the concentrated fire from the full auto rifles they were using, utilizing, which is impressive to see it at that distance. Yeah. See these uh, concentrated shot marks on those bulletproof glass. Uh, Total pros. Capable, experienced people, professionals, yeah. uh, U.S. trained. Yeah. Um, How were the Zetas trained by the U.S.? The Zetas were trained like some of them like and again i don't know a lot of details so i'm not part of that organization mm -hmm. or any of that but uh i had people that i worked with who were part of that organization mm -hmm. you know part of the uh gothis where the zetas were pulled mm -hmm. from uh and they tell me that they had ex they had training in texas yeah. uh they had training in uh, fort bragg some of them had fort bragg training uh some oh, of them of course that makes sense some Just of them like went through the americas some of them went through free fall training. Yeah. Some of them went through, uh, they knew how to operate night vision, uh, explosives, uh, long distance shooting. The, the only instances of cartel utilizing long distance shooting or precise shooting that I was ever privy to know about were done by the Zetas. Wow. Yeah. But they didn't try to actually uh, battle it out for. Tijuana or any of the no. drug routes. They were just there on contract. There was a, it was a, there was a weird moment in the history of like organized crime in Tijuana where they showed up. And again, something happened within the prison system with the leadership of the Ariano Fiat yeah. cartel, the Gulf cartel, and some of the Zetas. Something happened. So they, they showed up for a few times in Tijuana, but then, then they went away. What about the guns? You know, we spoke off pod about, you know, you were there for the era of Obama and the Fast and the Furious yeah. campaign. And that was obviously super famous. That's what up. But tell us a little bit about how that affected you yeah. and, and Tijuana. So I'm pro-gun before I go into all of this mm. stuff. You know, I'm a, I'm very pro-gun. was one of the main reasons, uh, you know, I came up here because I, ca I could have the responsibility to protect myself and my family if mm -hmm. I have to. Do you actually, do you think Mexico should have Second Amendment rights? Do you think it'd be better if ordinary people does, were allowed to protect themselves? It does, but the army suppresses it. Mexico has some of the most liberal firearms laws on the books in its constitution. Is that but right? it also, But it also, yeah, the right to bear arms is in the Mexican constitution to defend your house and your family. It's there. But, but yet ordinary but yet, citizens don't have guns. Because there's a giant federal firearms law that is enforced by the army in Mexico that has slowly but surely been growing as we, when I, when, when I got started in police work, there were, there were a few gun stores in Mexico still, mm -hmm. just a few. Now there's just one and it's run by the military. Right. And if you're not, if you can't afford a plane ticket with the paperwork involved in getting that gun that are sometimes usually insanely expensive. Yeah. You're not going to get it done. So obviously they make it like that on purpose. Why? What is the benefit to keeping Unarm guns away from ordinary Unarm people? An unarmed populace is the easiest populace to control and maintain. Mm -hmm. 
This is something that's been happening since the 60s. At in, During the 60s, you saw an attempted communist uprising in Mexico. And somehow they armed themselves with hunting rifles is what, they, mm -hmm. what the investigation showed. Uh, and the army didn't like that. So never again. So it started cutting down on the rights of Mexicans to possess arms. I think after the 60s and 70s, that, that, that right slowly shifted and went away. Like I grew up on a ranch. We had hunting rifles. Mm -hmm. That's unheard of now. Most people wow. don't have that unless they have a permit or some sort of, like I grew up running around hunting, hunting rabbits with a 22 caliber rifle right. at the, at the right. family ranch, at my grandfather's ranch. So of course. That, that's gone now. Do you think... Uh, Murder would decrease if ordinary Mexican citizens were strapped. I mean, like, do you think you the, have a, the deterrent you would, factor? You would have options. I, I, I was involved in a lot of eradication stuff. You know, every now and then we'd go out to the hillsides of Ensenada somewhere in the middle of nowhere and find places uh, that were being used as groves and as what as groves for marijuana for other stuff. Uh, there's a few laboratories out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, every now and then we would run into ranch houses in the middle of nowhere and they would have guns there. Mm. That's, there's no cops. There's no 911 service out there. You know, some of these guys had daughters, you know, mm. they're not cartel members. You think I'm going to take their guns from them? Right. So I would, I would empty out the, the, the bullets, put them in a bag and leave them in the outside for them. I would leave it, but we would leave the guns. Wow. Because it's, I, I, I couldn't disarm somebody like that, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. I think that's, a, that was a line for me in, internally. Do you, there's a lot of money in trafficking guns oh. from the U.S. to Mexico. Uh, yeah. Were you involved in any gun busts like that? Yeah. I mean, uh, most of the guns that we would find were from the U.S. Well, you know? Obviously. Uh, every now and then we would find places that make clavos. Clavos are basically hidden compartments or, or containers inside of vehicles. Tijuana is at Tijuana is basically the Wakanda of that of the world. <laughs> Tijuana. Clavos are traps. Clavos are traps. Yeah. Basically, if you if you put the volume knob here and this here, the mm -hmm. the seat will pop open. That yeah. type of shit. yeah. Insanely hard to find. I mean, U.S. Customs had a kind of hard, hard time finding them. Right. The way we started finding them is we basically had to go to school with the guys that were building them. Right. So we could figure them out. So we found a few loads through through basically finding associates of the people that were building those things and then would find, you know, like four four Glocks, you know, shrink wrapped on a uh on behind the boom uh boom boom box thing, yeah. stereo thing on the back of a car or something uh -huh. like that. Yeah. But some of the Fast and Furious guns that we're talking about, those those were way different. I mean, it, it's like uh, like in, in a week, in the span of a week, you started, most of the guns we would see back then were civilian, civilian ARs, some stolen or captured police and military rifles, AK-47s, you know, uh, Norinco AKs, some Soviet block stuff, and rare, you know, mm -hmm. coveted guns, you know, pistols. And all of a sudden you saw FN 5.7 pistols, P90s, calibers that were meant to gun a cop killer bullets as they were known up here. Yeah. Uh, 50 cal uh, rifles in the box, Barrett 50 cal rifles in the box that were obviously 
selected because they wanted to be able to pierce armored vehicles, mm -hmm. you know, because right. we started using armored vehicles. So they wanted to have of a way course. to pierce those. Uh, and they were undoubtedly American because yeah. everything that we would find had Magpul Dynamics on it, had Blackhawk, had you name the tactical brand of right. choice back then. It was just covered in it. And yeah. also the brands that were on these rifles, you know, I'm not going to mention the brands on those rifles, but name brand stuff that was in vogue Smith in the U.S. Wesson. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's like the oldest. Yeah. I mean, uh, Knight's Armament. Yeah. Uh, uh, Magpul stuff on uh, yeah. accessories on things. Uh, just these American, obviously American rifles that were being bought in straw purchases in the U.S. Right. sent down there. And a machine piece um, a, a piece of metal dropped into the sear and some things drilled out and now all of them are full auto capable. Uh, the, the ARs. The straw buyers in these, are, are, are they affiliates of the cartel? Like, is it, it, could it be, you know, Tijuana, they've got family who are Mexican Americans in the U S who have clean backgrounds. Uh, is it that organized or is it usually just, is it from what, from what I know, saw independent operators from what I saw back then, these cartels, and when I say these, probably the Sinaloa cartel has people, family, and just Americans living up here that work for them for decades now. Like full time. Full time. So wow. so they're, they're not sending their Sinaloa cartel operas from Sinaloa no. to convince straw purchase buyers to get. No, this, this is like organized crime that already exists there. Yeah. And they're like, hey, guys, get us rifles. That yeah. And that's... That's what they did. And that's what they do. And that's what they do. So the big controversy around it was that these guns ended up in the hands. I, explain the Fast and the Furious I, uh, scandal. The, the, I, won't, I, I won't go into too much detail on the U.S. side because I didn't experience it on the U.S. Okay. side. But according to what I've heard, the ATF under a program that ran from the Bush administration all the way to the Obama administration had a surveillance program where they were observing large straw purchases of firearms that were basically and clearly part of a shopping list that was being sent over by somebody, probably the Sinaloa cartel or factions of the Sinaloa cartel. Um, and they didn't do anything about it. They just observed, recorded, heard the, heard the concerns of the people selling those guns and uh, just let them walk down to Mexico. Mm. And the reason why the U.S. learned about it is a man named Ryan Terry. It was a federal agent who was killed by a cartel member that had one of these guns that was allowed to walk across the border. He literally walked across the border? I mean, th those guns were literally let walk across the border, and one of those guns was used to murder Ryan Terry. In Mexico? Wow. So... If that hadn't happened, the scandal wouldn't have broken. Right. But by this time, a few of my friends had already been killed with those guns. You know, uh, and I always tell the story of this specific one because I thought it was, it was a tragedy. It was really mm -hmm. bad. Uh, one of our guys was leaving his home with his wife and his daughter in the backseat. And two kids showed up with a FN 5.7 pistols. These are very expensive pistols with a very specific short, high velocity round. Uh, so they're weird, odd pistols to use in a thing like that. Uh, they murder him and his wife and his daughter loses an arm 
in the in the attempt and in, in the uh, assassination. And we that's the first time we see these guns, you yeah. know. So we started finding them everywhere. Uh, I have a picture of me holding some of them. You know, we would put them in the in the uh, in the database, and federal agencies in the U.S. would come and look at them. Yeah. You know, um, somebody at high level allowed all of those guns and has a responsibility. Mm. Yes, a federal agent in the U.S. was killed, and I've actually raised money for his charity here in the States. Well, and the reason I do it is to bring attention to the fact that, yeah, he was murdered, and it was a great tragedy and a great loss to this nation. But there was a bunch of my friends murdered, too, and nobody knows anything about a them. A lot more of them murdered. Yeah, and also just citizens, citizens. as well. Citizens. High-velocity rounds out of a pistol going through cars, you know, hitting a lady that was buying... Uh, a pair of reading glasses because she does uh, piano lessons uh, and she needed new glasses to be able to read the music and she gets shot with one of these guns. You know, these are the stories that you never hear about. Right. right? Um, that so this is not stopped though. That was just a scandal, but that, this is That not was a scandal because it, it had direct involvement with people letting them walk. Mm. But now it's, now, now it's just like anything bullet related magazine related or rifle related gets used to pay for down there. Mm. So if you have enough of those up here, you can send them down there and pay off a debt that you have. That's how just, valuable guns are. They can be used as currency in Mexico. Yeah. Bullets. I've, I've heard about bullets being utilized mm -hmm. to pay off uh, debts uh, bullets, <laughs> rifles. And also whenever you see an uptake in, all, in trafficking of this nature, or if, if you get one bust on the border, it means that there's like 50 of them or, right, you know, right. if you get one of them, but if you get two or three, it means that there's a lot of volume going down. That's right. what people should notice about that. Mm -hmm. And you're starting this, I mean, what you saw, what you saw specifically during the, uh, these past few, these past few uh, years, uh, people are getting ready for, you know, a war of some sort, you know, they're, they're stockpiling. Wow. Yeah, rounds, munitions are being stockpiled. During COVID, it was cheaper to get ammo black market in Mexico, which is a hilarious thing. Uh, uh, during remember COVID, there was a mm -hmm. shortage of ammo in mm -hmm. the states. Yeah, you can get bla black black uh, market nine millimeter cheaper in some parts of Mexico than in the United than in States, the US. which is hilarious. Wow, because they were stock they, they've been they stock were stockpiling. They've been stockpiling yeah. there. Um, so, so is that actually a business for the cartels too that have a bunch of excess bullets? Do they actually sell them on nah, the free market? It's, it's, it's like a hoarding they, thing. They keep them. Every now and then there's like weird places where they do like that. Yeah. I have it. And we're going to go into a weird place. Uh, Mexico City is a place like that. Mexico City has a place called Tepito in it. I've heard of it. Tepito. It's not as spicy as it used to be. I went to Tepito when it was spicy <laughs> you know i went to the pizza when i was still a cop yeah, it's 2008 2009 maybe 2010 I don't, I don't remember like around that era i went down there regularly um uh i grew up with a weird faith weird i say weird because it's to americans it's like they always get freaked out by it because their only exposure to it is uh breaking bad probably uh i grew up as a santa muerte practitioner so Santa Muerte is in my religious background. Yeah. And Tepito, they have an altar there. So when I would go down there, I would go to the Santa Muerte altar in Tepito. And uh, 
you know, leave flowers, leave a candle. It's, it's a thing, right? I'm Catholic and it's kind of like in that Mexican Catholic mm-hmm. weirdness. And then I would go walk the markets with some of the locals. You know, if you go to there, if you go to that altar and they see you venerate there and do your thing, you're cool. So we'll hang out with you, right? You talk to them. So they took me to this open air market there. They would rent out a pistol and the bullets. So they they will they could they'll rent you a gun and the bullets. So you can go off and do your right. robberies. You gotta go that. do some but work. If you, but if you shoot somebody, then you're gonna have to there's like a penalty if you shoot somebody, or if you if you're missing a round from your magazine, you have to give back. Right. So it's like a deposit. It's like a, it was like blockbuster for, for guns <laughs> oh in, one of, in one of these little wow. weird corners that I wow. found in there. Did you ever get in a shootout? Yeah. Yeah. How many? I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's Tijuana. <laughs> uh, what was I your think first it, shootout? Was that like, do you remember how, ex- was it exciting? Because I imagine like being in a shootout, the adrenaline, there's got to be some dopamine rush to that you know uh no you didn't find it like i don't that? i don't think it's so so whatever adrenaline whatever people say adrenaline rushes are uh that happens like a little bit at the start and then the rest of it is just i mean if you're in a, in a if you're in a job like that in a place like that you're it's like a it's like somebody drinking coffee constantly a cup of coffee's not gonna do shit for you. right, right. it's not about you being cool or anything like that it's like the first time that something like that happens to you, the first time it happened to me, I didn't know what the fuck was going on. I didn't know where front was, back was, you know, you hear if anybody has ever actually been in a situation where rifles are being shot next to you and rifles are being shot at you from over there. I mean, the sound of it alone is deafening. It's just like you, there's no, you can't communicate with people around you. You know, all you know is that the people around you are firing that way. So probably shoot that mm-hmm. way, you know? Um, How far into the job were you when you got in your first shootout? It was a, probably a few months in, like a month, like a month. A month in? Yeah. Uh, yeah. A bunch of Suburbans uh, picked up a dude somewhere in downtown Tijuana. And we rushed there to try and figure something out, do something. We're stupid. We're young. We're motivated. It's like 40 of them and like four or five of us, you know? So they were kidnapping a guy. Yeah. Kidnapping a guy. Somebody called it in. Called it in and respond. And we're new. We don't know this at this time. We had a, like a command, a C4 is what they call it. It's basically a radio station. All the cops all the fire departments, all the emergency services are tied into that. Mm-hmm. You would hear out a call, reports of shots fired, vehicles, armed men, and in our minds, so let's go. But what actually happens is nobody goes. Nobody shows up because everybody knows you know, who it is, so nobody shows up. So nobody would show up to these things except us. So the first time that happened, there was a bunch of new guys there with me, uh, one older guy, and we went, we responded, stupidity we shouldn't respond probably we should have waited you know we responded and uh i don't know why is it stupid to respond i'm not uh, it's a it's almost died you don't know what you're going into i mean we heard we heard reports and we didn't read the reports specifically like if you hear four vehicles armed men 
you should do the math about how many people are right. in, probably in those four vehicles. Yeah. You know, four me four vehicles it means at least three rifles per vehicle are active, and one dude's behind the wheel yeah. at least. Yeah, you know, and there's four of us. Right. <laughs> so there was a stup stupidity there. Yeah, we got there, and one of the guys that was, I figured I, I'd be I'd, I'd be better if I put myself in the back of the truck instead mm -hmm. of in the front. So you guys are r riding in a truck. Yeah. So I get out of the passenger side and go into the, in the back of the truck and I'm just, you know, ready. What do you got? What do you got? An AR. Okay. Two, 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 three AR Colt, uh, three magazines. Uh, the guy in the front has a shotgun. <laughs> Not good. Uh, it raises the, we stop at this intersection. We see them slowly just pass by. They're in a red up armored suburban. Some of them. Uh, they show us the, stock, the the wooden stocks of their AKs. And some of them point at us. Uh, and they know you're cops? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Can the, I ask this? The, 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 guy, the guy in front of us driving has a radio in his hand. And he's going to do this. And that's when I scream at him to not move. You know? Um, they pass by. They didn't, they didn't light us up. They, they, they probably saw us as like, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so let's just leave. So they move They're further on down the road. They, that's when the shot started. And we basically went there and joined a bunch of other people that were uh, army specifically that were shooting at, uh, at these guys. Uh, the thing is that it's an urban environment. These vehicles are not marked and a bunch of cars are leaving the area. So all you have to do is turn four vehicles into single vehicles and just spread them. Uh, I remember that was the first time that I, there was rounds going around and I was like, am, am I supposed to shoot too? Like I was looking around me for somebody to tell me if I should shoot or not. And then all of a sudden everybody was shooting towards a direction. So I said, let's just shoot in that general direction. Wow. Uh, it's true what they say though. Like most of the gunshots shot in war and stuff like that. Nobody knows where the f*** you're going. Right. <laughs> because they were just right. peeking that out and yeah. shooting in that way. There was a lot of Mogadishu shooting going on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, erratic, chaotic, not cool. Uh, cold sweat stomach, mm. uh, uh, weird almond uh, sense and taste in your nose because of the your brain jostling in and out of your head with all those rounds going off. Uh, a weird uh, stiffness in your knees and your hands because they're like locked into place mm -hmm. and your jaws locked as well. You're just in a ball. Your, your body wants to go into a little ball, but your brain says you have to shoot. So you have to stretch out and shoot. So it's a weird push and pull that your body's going through. Where it's like, you should be in a hole somewhere covering, but you're doing this. So you're going against your very nature. So yeah. after that, diarrhea. <laughs> after that, uh, a diarrhea from all the toxins releasing your body a few hours later. Just nervousness. Uh, laughing, playing it off. Right. You know, being a yeah, this is, everything's fine. Did anybody get hit? Did anybody? Did not, you, on our, not, not with me, no. Did they capture the... What's the what was the protocol when you were on the job when there was a situation like that? Were you just allowed to engage? Yeah. It's, 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 it was, 
that's the thing, man. There's no supervision. There's nobody there with you talking about it. <laughs> so or crazy. There's nobody. It's like you don't have like a commanding officer. That's sometimes like, you didn't. Sometimes you're there with the army, and the army's like, "Who's in charge?" And everybody's looking at everybody like that. that it was chaotic. It was you, chaotic. There was no at the start of it, man. There was no real leadership. Uh, it was basically like, "Let's figure this." Out. it was improvised it was what was the what was the exact objective what were you trying to what did they tell you that you were there to achieve nobody told it until lieutenant colonel showed up uh, right the guy that basically orchestrated this whole uh group that we were a part of and the effort that was about to take place uh he gets named the, the director of the group that i was in basically and he his first day he shows up uh, and he's like, it's Gordon Ramsay, you know, that's his, yeah. Like he shows up and he like, you know, he's in charge. Uh, first day he shows up, he's like, why are you wearing that? Cut that off. Take that out. That, that rifle is that right. Is that rifle fixed? That looks like that's broken. You take that to be fixed. What do you guys need? What else do you need? Uh, who knows his way around the city? Who wants to be my bodyguard? One step forward and he just points at me. And I am his uh, driver for his first day of patrolling Tijuana as wow. the new director of the institution that I was in. Um, Army officer. Uh, he was part of Operation Condor, like the first operations in Sinaloa to, to eradicate. That, that was his first experience in the wow. military when he was like 18 or 17 or some crazy like that. So he's highly experienced man, highly educated, war college graduate, um, very smart. Uh, he viewed the problem in Tijuana specifically as a counterinsurgency problem. That's how he viewed it. So what does that mean? Basically, he says we're going to operate as a counterinsurgency and not as a this isn't a policing problem. These, right. these people are operating very much like an insurgency. So we're going to work counterinsurgency on them in a lot of ways. So first thing he does is basically set up a coordination table of security with all of the people in charge. Uh, the head of the municipal police, the head of the army, the governor, the municipal president, everybody, everybody's there. And he says, who's in charge? You know, and everybody puts, everybody there agrees to put him in charge. And then basically it's, it's game time. That's when that happened. Basically now we have the full support of the politi politics, mm -hmm. private money there because members of the private, uh, of the private industry were there and now we're, you know, we had leadership. So mm -hmm. that's when things really started raging, you know. As the uh, objective to kill the, the insurgents? The objective is to... And by the way, yeah. I assume the insurgents being cartel everybody member. that's not there from Tijuana. Yeah. So in their, Because the cartel's always been in Tijuana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The way that, he, the, way that the, the process would put forth is that there are two warring entities in Tijuana that are trying to figure things out here. We can't allow neither of them to take control of everything. So let's just do a blanket process. Now, when this was happening, he realized quickly that the main arm or the main support system of these cartels was the Tijuana Municipal Police. My mind is blown. So repeat that again. The Tijuana Municipal Police was basically 
what allowed these criminal organizations to operate and openly move around the city. And if the municipal, the Tijuana municipal police, police were their main intelligence service. Mm -hmm. Uh, wow. And within the police department, it wasn't just, it wasn't like the whole of the municipal police department would work with one cartel. It was like this precinct work worked with that one. <laughs> this precinct worked with that one. And slowly but surely, he started figuring this out. We started wow. figuring it out. Yeah. And how are you going to change that? You know how? So he figured out a way to get himself named the head of the. Tijuana Municipal Police. Oh my God! So is this guy a marked man? I he mean, has. He had. He had. Yeah. He he was marked. How this, many assassination attempts? He, he had nine assassination attempts. The last one took the use of his legs. He's in a wheelchair now, wow. and he's still. I am still afraid of him. <laughs> Were you ever with him when they tried to uh, kill him? Not. Not. I, I was there. So I responded to some of the attempts, uh, wow. but not. Not with. Not during one of the attempts. No. Uh, the he became the head of the, the the municipal police and then later on turned into the he basically figured out how to fix that issue internally by doing that so what what how do you fix a, a police force that corrupt do you just fire the cops and you so find he, out that he, the he, he he quickly realized that the municipal police and the local police is essential in figuring out how to change the power dynamics in a city yeah when it comes to cartels yeah i mean there's no way you like the local cop on the street corner is going to be way more important or essential for cartel operations than a federal cop that comes from out of, out of the state mm -hmm. that shows up there doesn't know yeah and he's gonna leave he doesn't have a vested yeah. interest there so that's the that's the valuable to it so then what's what do you do with that guy if so, you're so the chief what do you do with that guy on the corner the same the cop? process he did with us as far as certification and confidence exams and all of that was then instituted to, towards them and so I imagine tons of police were let go. It uh, there was a there was a lot of them that quit right immediately, and the people that didn't want to quit, so that he would go into a place and say that guy, that precinct over there mm -hmm. is run by a guy that works for one of the cartels. Yeah, well, hey, I know you're working for one of these cartels. Yeah, tomorrow you show you're going to work at that other precinct with the rival that the rival cartel works out. Yeah. Um, no, I'm not. I quit. <laughs> I quit. Right. Yeah. So he started doing that. Yeah. Uh, and systematically, uh, the, the, I think is is after his time. But the whole of the municipal police was disarmed, and all of their guns were put through forensics, and a lot of them were found to be have bodies on them. Wow. These are officially uh, issued firearms. Wow. Um, there was a massive a massive arrest of of uh, pol state police. And municipal police leadership wow. at that time, uh, they were taken to the who arrests them, the army members of some of our guys. You know, were involved in some of that. Some of that, uh, they get picked up uh, with. At this, this is the kickoff of the drug war. Mm -hmm. So, people want to have in their minds like a post nine eleven, you know, where anything goes, mm -hmm. like Patriot era, yeah. This is this is the political attitude and climate back then. Like right. anything goes. Oh, right. you don't have any evidence on these guys? Take them. We anyway. don't care. We don't yeah. care. Arrest them. Yeah. So there was a lot of stupid done mm -hmm. with these arrests and detentions. So a lot of them went with organized crime charges to Mexico City, and a lot of them got out because they were they, 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 their case were, were thrown out of court mm -hmm. because of not lack of evidence or not appropriate evidence, and a lot of the arrests 
the rest were done by the military, mm. which doesn't have that function. And interesting. So there was a lot of stuff like that got happening during that time. The whole of the municipal police was disarmed at one point in Tijuana, which was that's crazy, fascinating, fascinating. Every single imagine every single cop in Los Angeles gets stripped of their badge. They gun. were walking around with like uh, slingshots. <laughs> oh my! They were walking as a sign of protest. And uh, at this time, a lot of our guys and a lot of the military was basically put in charge of different segments of the city. Yeah. So like we were the we mm -hmm. were the local police for a, for a while, you know, just covering. Wow. Uh, so he figured out so quickly. That really worked. It it would it dramatically worked. Uh, so did you see a decrease in the level of murder when we saw a decrease? So this is how it started to manifest the effects of his his change the changes that he was implementing. Number one, uh, murders were still happening. Shootouts were still happening. Like that was still mm -hmm. going on, but they weren't in the open as much. Like that convoy that I found that that we found <laughs> I almost got killed mm -hmm. by. Or the in the middle of the day convoy showing up at a TGI Fridays mm -hmm. that they have in in Zona Rio in Tijuana, uh, with a cartel guy and had like just fuck clothes that not it would all happen in the open. These guys started hiding, right? They started hiding, right? So they started. That's when we knew that we were making a an they were having sure. an effect. You know, uh, they switched from moving around in, you know, at the start they were moving around in uh, suburbans and. Tahoe's obvious and, and then they started cloning police vehicles and pretending to be like federal agents yeah and after some of these changes started occurring they started switching to taxis and right more discreet vehicles and right. operating differently so you you started seeing that they were started to change the way they worked so right. that there was a change there what is it like today uh in terms of the uh the municipal police in in TJ so he he brought the city back from the brink. It's, okay. People can argue about this, and they're still arguing about mm -hmm. it now. Uh, uh, when he left the city, he left the city better. Right. He uh, he got tasked with doing the same job he did in Tijuana, in Juarez, and he did the same thing in Juarez. Wow. Right. Um, it involved a lot of things aligning. You know, he had the mm -hmm. right people that he mm -hmm. trained from early yeah. on, from early on uh, that he could trust. He had political backing. He had money, uh, the private sector backing, uh, and people that were just fed up with it. Yeah, because it's unsustainable to live like that. Yeah. Um, after he left, he was there was an arrest warrant put out uh, after investigations led to. Uh, some of the people that he arrested, including some of those cops, and basically like that five were now his enemies. And, yeah. And some of them had political influences and allegiances and led to him to basically have a, a standing arrest warrant uh, for years. Wow. Uh, so he had to go into hiding. Wow. Uh, when I, I interviewed him for my podcast for about four hours, um, and he had an active arrest warrant while I was interviewing him, so we had to do some scrollation to start going around. Um, but... Uh, he was vilified. All of us were. All of us were. Like everybody that was involved in all that became a villain. And it's probably because of the politics. So if you're a part of a successful political effort to quell violence in Tijuana, mm -hmm. and you represent that other political yeah. uh, system that did that, when the new one comes in, you're 
you're out. You're out. You're an enemy, right? Um, all the polygraph examinations that were done, uh, all of the background checks, all that went away. A lot of that stopped mm. uh, or was declared unconstitutional by more woke to the left mm. politics that came in to right. the U.S. Just like, again, 9-11 Patriot Act, everybody was cool with it. And then yeah. people start not being cool with it. Same phenomenon happened down there. Uh, so, yeah, everybody's like all of like that's what happened to me. I had to leave the job because of how it turned into a unsustainable office. Wow. So a lot of us started, had, we had to leave. Were you, what year is this? This is 2016, 17 era. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you were, you felt like you were forced out. Oh yeah. Yeah. All of us, all of us, is, as soon as he left and the politics changed, we were celebrated and all of a sudden we were, you guys. Did whole, you feel like they could have put a warrant out for your arrest? Yeah. Under what guise? Do you name, I mean, you can, I can have somebody show up somewhere and just come up with a complaint about me. Yeah. You know, um, are you, how do you, do you move, you know, you live down there. Are you, do you watch where you go? Yeah. Are you still, I'm, I mean, I you're, care. you're a cop in Mexico. Yeah. I, so even an ex cop, yeah, you still got to be careful. I still have to be careful. Number one thing though, I never worked for any side and I, right. and you can quote me on that. If somebody out there says that I have like, tell me which side I worked. I never right. worked a single one. Because I knew for a fact, and this is a lesson we learned from the old guys that were there before we got there. Mm -hmm. As soon as you pick a side, you paint a giant mark on your back. Right. Because it's a matter of time as soon as you pick a side. When you were on the job, did you have any fellow yeah. cops that ended up choosing sides? Hey, yeah. A ton of them. Can you tell us about a, one that sticks out? <sighs> I'll tell you about this one. This is pretty cool one i guess i never i never talked about this one it's that a few people probably know about it maybe uh there's a there's a bunch of uh there's a bunch of uh beachside property uh between playas and rosarito yeah it's a bunch of houses you know it's also a giant rat's nest you know that's where a lot of a lot of the you know the, the nefarious types hide um i wasn't there for that like was there resp i responded to it though uh this uh, report of a laboratory that was found, you know, laboratory. When the, and down there, there's no hazmat teams. We don't have like a hazmat team. Mm -hmm. And our, this is Mexico, man. We, don't have, we call the fire department, you know? Yeah. So they, there's a report of that, that they found one. And it's our guys that found it. And they're working with the army. So everybody clears out. You're uh, talking a meth lab? Yeah. Okay. Everybody clears out. When they find one of those, basically it's, you know, clear out contain then people come in handle the hazards yeah. and we figure that out so these guys on the inside call and say hey there's some happening in here we found some stuff chemicals everybody clear out mm -hmm. and then they don't hear about they don't hear from them for an hour and then they walk into this property and the radios and their phones are in the middle of the table on a table in this room in this house and the rumor is, and I, I don't know this for certain, that they found a ton of money there. <laughs> these two guys that I used to work with found a ton of money there. And uh, they left their radios and their phones and disappeared with their families that same night. I don't know how much money they found. Wow. But that's, I, I feel like that happened. Um, wow. 
Uh, so they took the money and fled. Wow. They uh, went to look at their houses and shit like that. Gone. Did you have anybody? Uh, that, that, that happened. Like that, yeah. That, like that would happen. Do you remember any recruits from your era that actually ended up getting killed because they got too, too involved with the side? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's. So there's no internal affairs per se. There's just us keeping our, keeping each other honest. Yeah. And us keeping each other safe. If one right. of us is compromised from going somewhere, we're going to get ambushed and there's a going to happen. Yeah. We don't want any of that. So we, no. so we keep each other safe, you know? And also we had all these background checks and stuff like that. Every year people would come to our houses. Surprise. How was this? Counted number of TVs in our house. And like, when'd you get that? Did you have the receipt for it? Like this is the level of scrutiny we're getting. Wow. Right. Um, so, but we were cool with it because everybody's, you know, since everybody's on, in on it, mm -hmm. you're like, we can trust each other. But the problem with it is the dimension of time and need changes with each individual. I mean, you could be uncorruptible because you're unmarried and don't have, you know, but then you get married and you have kids. And the needs change, yeah. And the desperation changes, and it's Mexico, and they pay cops. How much were they paying you as kind of these elite federal? I was in a re I was a regional sub commander, so I was running somewhere in the vicinity of three thousand dollars a month. Good money, though. Regional, Mexico regional sub commander. That's pretty good yeah. money. It's r roughly around yeah two 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 hundred two thousand seven hundred to three three thousand yeah. dollars a month. Yeah, which. It sounds great, and it's not that great. <laughs> uh, another issue is that you, at that time, and I don't know now, at that time, there's no way in hell you could get credit for anything as a cop in Mexico. So think about this. You go to work as a cop in Mexico, which means now means you can't get a credit card, you can't get a credit loan, you can't credit to get a car or a house automatically. <laughs> Why would you become a cop? <laughs> Why though? What is that? <laughs> it's a cultural thing. And I don't know why that is. There's some places that make exceptions, but as soon as you walk into a bank and ask to get a line of credit and you say that you're a cop, you, you, there was, there was a conversation and you wouldn't get it. This is Mexico. And if people had never heard this before, that this is what I'm here for, I guess. I, I, these are the details that I want to share. That's, uh, well, first of all, how is that there not been some kind of class action lawsuit? I may sound like the most naive person in the world, I don't, I don't. but but why is that not, uh, because, that's like a constitutional because discrimination Mex Mexican issue. Mexican police are probably one of the most neutered when it comes to rights Yeah, uh, organizations in Mexico. Uh, they don't have a right to unionize. They don't have a right uh, to strike. Like it's, they can't speak to the press. Like it's in the it's in the contracts. Uh, it's 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 one of the. Here's another one, and this might have changed. If you're a cop in Mexico, if you go if at, during the time that I was active, if you went into one of these police organizations in any state in Mexico, and then you decided to quit because you had an issue or something like that, and you wanted to come back you're automatically disqualified from joining any single police agency in all of Mexico, unless you have some sort of connection. If you belong to a police organization in the past. Wow. 
it just like it's like vendetta it's like vengeance if you want to create your worst enemy that's how you do it and yeah. that's why mexico is the way it is it produced it made enemies out of people like myself i'm currently in the u.s i get paid by the government to train to show them how to do interesting stuff and people are people in that realm are impressed by what i know how to do right. and i always tell them most of the people that I used to work with knew way more than I do. Wow. And where do you think they're working now? Yeah. Do you think they stayed on? Of course. To be know? treated like second-class citizens, literally. It is one of the most hard, it's one of the most difficult jobs on the planet, realistically. And, and, and they make it really hard down there. The government does. And Why do you think that is? What do you think is really going on? It's a stigma. It's a stigma. You know, it's a authority thing, um, you know, I, I get this, it, it kills me here in the US, man. I, I, most of the online attack I, uh, online attacks I get are from the fact that it was a cop in Mexico and there's no way in hell you can be a cop in Mexico without being corrupted somehow or being a horrible person. You know, you get that in the States when you say that. Hey, I was a cop in Mexico. What comes to your mind? Corruption, mm -hmm. how much money did you get? Mm -hmm. You know, all that. So it's, think about that you know yeah. uh, every now and then i i tell people that like approach me about that job like would you change anything everything man yeah. culture is just the the policing in mexico and the culture around it and the way the cops are treated in general in a lot of ways deserved you know there's horrible police officers in mexico yeah. that have done horrible things yeah uh but there's others that haven't you yeah. know and you don't hear about them, you know? They and just you don't see them. that getting improving with the, the political no, I just, class that keeps going to the left. I recently, the left. I, so I recently did uh, some training down there for, for some agencies in Mexico uh, through the company that, I, that, that I'm now a part of. And it sh was shocking to see how backwards things are. Um, when I was active, the federal police, before I left, the federal police was professionalized. I mean, some of them had career paths. Mm -hmm. They had a, they had a online crimes division. They like legit, they were doing, they yeah. were doing stuff. They were corrupt too, you know, there was some corrupt going on, yeah. so, but they were trying, you know? Yeah. All that's gone. Hmm. All of that is militarized now. What used to be a command center with a communications tower, an intelligence thing, uh, surveillance. Mm -hmm. Now it's just a military barracks with a bunch of mattresses on the ground and a bunch of dudes in the back of trucks patrolling. So there's any effort to legit do something professional yeah. or scientific or figuring out how to create this police force to fight the, uh. this organized crime in Mexico. Well, that's gone. It's reverted to stand your ground, patrol, Nothing's happening, and we'll go after them on our own terms. Uh huh. You know that's what you see now. And, and you see the the big busts of headline kingpins. I, I call them kingpins that make the headlines. Uh, how is that? How is the military able to do that if you, they don't have good cops like you doing like real investigative police I mean, work? I mean, cops again. Cops are going away in Mexico. I think we're. That's what it feels like. Mm -hmm. The whole aspect of Mexico being militarized now. Yeah. I think that's where we're heading towards, I mm -hmm. guess. Uh, a national military police of some sort. Yeah. Uh, 
they're not interested in young uh, guys yeah. were, that were, you know, from the ground up to do a professional police right. effort like the ones we did. That's not the, the current approach is to basically simplify everything and, yeah. you know, militarize everything. I guess. What about the war on drugs? Like, you know, uh, clearly in the U.S., there's the paradigm has shifted to this place where we see that the, you know, draconian sentencing laws of the Reagan era and, uh, you know, going after drug dealers hasn't stopped drugs. Yeah. Hasn't stopped drug use. But it's great for business. It's great for business, of course. It uh, Ford, Ford Motor Company, mm -hmm. Chevrolet sells a bunch of cop cars in mm -hmm. Mexico that are paid for by tax dollars from you and me. Yeah. So, but what about in the war on drugs in Mexico? Yeah. Because, you know, we see this as you've shown us, there's a huge demand for drugs in Mexico. Yeah. And you guys have your own war on drugs internally there's, and fighting the people yeah. that are sending drugs to us. Where is that at now, opinion-wise? I, and I, I, th I think uh, there is no war on drugs in Mexico. There's no war on drugs in Mexico. There's you, you, What you see is like, uh, you see this mention of, uh, like by the federal authorities, they mentioned them as criminal organizations and criminal groups that are being sponsored by the, what they're dealing with the United States. That's, that's kind of like the narrative, you know? These are... These are threats that are endemic to Mexico. They're, they're endemic to Mexico, but they're being formalized and created by the United States. So the blame is here, in the minds of the of the of the Mexicans, I guess. You know, when it comes to like a drug war, that's something that people in Mexico equate to Felipe Calderon, because he's the one that has that rhetoric. Mm. But with uh, with the current state of affairs, with the new pre with the pr current president, there is no drug war. Nothing's happening. Mm. You know, we're safe. Everything's fine. They're just making it up. And it's all, you know, the, it's all the, the past administration's fault. Basically that's the, that's the way they handle it. Uh, most, most of Mexico is segmented. You have Monterey, mm -hmm. you have Baja, you have Guadalajara, you have Mexico city, you have all these, this, these specific States are very important where some of these cartels come out of it's like Sinaloa. Um, but most of politics comes from central Mexico mm -hmm. and it's very detached from the realities of most of mm -hmm. Mexico. It's our California, you know, totally. it's our California, you know, completely detached from the realities of other parts of Mexico. Like, uh, we have, uh, we had a, a situation in Chiapas, um, where, uh, local, local new generation cartel started fighting for power. Yeah. And we had, El Mayo Zambada of the Sinaloa Cartel right. Federation send a whole contingent of armed personnel across the country into Chiapas. Somehow they weren't seen on the on the roads by the military down yeah. there. And they basically got into a firefight over control of the territory. Meanwhile, on the other side of the border, the army of the, you know, the Kaibilas, uh SF guys and the Guatemalans were basically ready to you know, shoot across the border. All this is happening in Mexico. The EZLN, the 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 the, the revolutionary groups, yeah. basically said that that they're they're taking a vacation because it's one thing to fight the government, but it's one another thing to fight the cartels. Right, and they're not about that life. Mm. So a lot of the co-ops are actually being closed. Wow. So think about it. 
decades-long revolutionary fight by the SLN is being ended within the span of a few days by two rival cartels fighting wow. it out for control in wow. the area. Mexico is in such a bad state in general. I mean, it's one of the most violent presidential periods on the planet. It's more violent than the one Calderon had. And I'm not comparing them both because both of them were horrible. Mm. Both of them were mis mismanaged. Both of them had a ton of corruption in them. Um, but there's something has to give. And I, I think that's what we're seeing now. I think at some levels of government, specifically the military levels of the government, they're looking for some sort of control or restraint at a national level as we head into the elections. This rhetoric that is being bipartisanly talked about here in the U.S. about naming cartels, a, a cartels, a, a terrorist organization mm -hmm. is making them really nervous. Wow. Is making it really nervous. And I think that's what we're seeing now. This uh, election season push to to try and make the citizenship like, oh, these guys are actually making a dent in the problems. Yeah. As you said, you know, you cut one head off the snake. Mm -hmm. We just caught, caught three heads off snakes recently. And they're already, you know, the head of security for the Chapo Guzman sons is, was probably, you know, not on the job that day. Right. Which means that there's somebody else's, somebody else is probably on that job now. Yeah. Uh, you already see, you saw some high level assassinations on this side of the border recently. Uh, really? In LA uh, of a certain people that were related or associated with some of these cartels down south. So there's already... The pieces are already moved. I think whatever is settling down in Mexico is specifically related to creating a new status quo where it's not afraid of the U.S. sending Reaper drones down there uh, to try and kill the terrorists down in Mexico. Because realize this, if the U.S. does, you know, declare them a terrorist organization, it's, it's going to give the U.S. a bunch of excuses to take out everybody that isn't uh, part of the program just like it did before. So there's all there's uh, there's you know Saddam Hussein was not a part of Al Qaeda. Can we can I correct and we agree with yeah, that? Sure. But he was a state sponsor of terrorists. Mm. You actually see that happening? I think that's I think that's where we're headed. Do you think the military in Mexico wants that? Do you think the cartel wants that? Nobody wants that. I think the US is finding itself against the wall now mm. think about this well, what, what's well, the think us a, think about think, think think about what the only foreign policy issue in the u.s that we have right now yeah that is bipartisan uh the fruit coming from mexico no like, but as far as policy in general you know that's bipartisan the only ones that i've seen is the this committee <laughs> for israel is this <laughs> sport for israel is not really bipartisan. not really I don't know. Well, I, 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 I see, I see this effort right now that, and this real big effort to try and put these people into the, the category of a narco terrorist organization. Uh -huh. Right. And do they fall into that category? I mean, you tell me, hmm. I mean, ISIS learned how to use videos of people getting murdered and assassinated by the cartels. That's mm -hmm. what they learned that from all those yeah. high produced videos. They learned that from the cartels. Yeah. Uh, those drones that were utilized in uh, Ukraine and some of the drones that utilized in the attack on Israel, some of that technology was perfected in Michoacan. Wow. <laughs> wow. Right? And uh, 
Mexico has a tendency to 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 basically be at the center of some of these uh creation of things like these these weapons designs and the first time I saw a drone being utilized criminally was in Tijuana you know oh my god a Please. quad a quad drone a, a big ass quad drone that crash landed near the uh the San Isidro port of entry uh it had a big meth brick on it <laughs> and I saw it I didn't know what it was I never seen a drone I saw I've, I've seen drones before but not that big with those it was a quad yeah. drone thing uh with these tubes and it had a made in China logo on there um but this big and then I was like wow this is going to be a thing right yeah uh we shut are they off. doing those are they, they still using drones to to bring in bricks I think so I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't know. You've been out for a little bit. I've been out for a little bit, but they were utilizing them a lot at, 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 a, at a certain period down there. And would you shoot those down? No, no, you can see them. It's a dark sky up above. They would, they would focus on dark nights. Oh, so you would just pick it up on the radar. No radars. Uh, one, one of them crashed. Everybody shot off their sirens. Uh, uh. <laughs> So you're not gonna shoot anything. Oh my god! But this is this is a while back. This is 2011 or some shit like that. Uh, in the course of your investigation, that, did you do you discover any drug tunnels in TJ? Yeah, they, 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 we found we found a few. Yeah. Well, the army then, you know, were you because were, the army was always responsible for finding drug tunnels, you know. But yeah, yeah. And when somebody found a drug tunnel, I mean, that's a big that oh, cost yeah. the cartel a lot of money. So was is that a rival? Is that a rival snitching I, 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 on another I will, one? I will say this. It was never through investigative police work. <laughs> it was never through just doing good cop work. It was always through a snitch. It was always a snitch. Yeah. And when you would get like that, it was, you know, it was immediately apparent that somebody was somebody over, you know, as far as cartel and cartel, you know, the army was always called. What do they do after they find them? Shut it, shut the tunnel down. Do they fill it in? Uh, so there's always a volunteer, you know, that goes down. Uh, you know, the, the depending on you know, like I remember this one. It had a a very very sophisticated ventilation center, uh, system in there. Mm -hmm. Like it had air and light. Yeah. Had a drainage system. Uh, it had a very specific little weird uh, machine that they used to uh, circulate uh, uh, circulate oxygen in there. Um, so everything was documented when they found that space. Basically, they found some sort of weird connection with uh, mining in, in, in Guanajuato and a mining industry in Guanajuato, silver mining industry in mm -hmm. Guanajuato. Uh, basically, the mining engineers were trying to figure out what to do. We're basically building some of these tunnels. Uh, some of them were sophisticated. Yeah. Some of them were garbage. Yeah, like yeah, like a few a, a few stories about cave-ins and some of them. Yeah. You know, basically people finding half tunnels. You know, Ooh. people that attempted. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, they're they're usually reported on both sides. You know, mm -hmm. uh, usually somebody walks them uh, to see where they come out. Yeah, unarmed. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um. The soil in that part of the in that part of the country is different. Uh, I've heard multiple attempts by companies that were very successful in Israel 
detecting tunnels, the the tunnels that go under the wall there, mm-hmm. trying to implement that in this part of the world. Doesn't work. You wow. tell me. Wow. So so I've, I've seen attempts uh, to try and figure that out, but I've, I haven't seen them work specifically on my end. I I don't know how many of them are operating. Yeah. If I did, I would probably be a dead man, you know? Yeah. But there's there's a lot of tunnels on that border. That's that's a that's a that's a certainty. You Were know? you ever approached by one of the sides yeah. during the war? Constantly, yeah. It's it's always through, it's always through intermediaries. Yeah, lawyers. Oh, uh, please tell us. Uh, so, and in, how did you not take the money, Ed? <laughs> I don't want to die. Number one. Uh, so in Mexico, if you're a cop, you depending on the on the on the on the arrest or whatever it is uh we found this guy that had a ton of ruhypnol pills ruhypnol is heart medication it's, it's a downer mm. done guy distributed ruhypnol pills for somebody so we caught him with all that and in mexico you're supposed to do a careo back then it was this way Mexican legal system actually changed while I was in it, right? Um, so it's not like here where you go to a courtroom and there's like a jury and like that. The judge is right there and there's a dude right there writing everything down and the accusatory part is over there and there's the other part is over here and there. you're just there with them in this room, just going back and forth. You said that you found him like this. Yes, I did. This is what I wrote in there, okay. But how could you have found him like this if this video shows he's there? Like, you know, that's how they yeah. they work on it. These cartel lawyers are sharks. Yeah. Sharks. They, they'll take everything apart. So I was in one of those rooms uh, and they were taking taking the apart of me, you know, and, and uh, my uh, documentation and some of the arrests that we did. Um, they, t- they, they, they get him out, you know. Uh, while I'm walking outside, I get approached by one of them. And he's like, yeah, you, you, you look like you need like a lawyer like me on your side. And he has me one of his lawyer cards. And he says, if you ever want to talk about like actual work, we can talk. Hmm. You know, there's people out there that are interested in you working for them. Wow. Uh, and you know, like, you're like, you know. Yeah. Uh, and you know what do you say to that? And yeah. there's no there's no training for that. No. And that you hear about it to other people, yeah. and you just take the card. And the the what I've learned out of all of these is the best thing you can do is not say anything. Just take the card. Mm-hmm. Just be quiet about yeah. it. So cartel lawyers are about as honest as cops down there. Oh yeah. So so they're <laughs> not you know because obviously mob lawyers, criminal lawyers in the U.S. Uh, they know most of their clients are guilty. Yeah. That's pretty and obvious. Also, and also realize this is Mexico. The judges are cartel judges too. The state prosecutor or the federal prosecutor might be on one of those sides I as was well. going to ask you that. So yeah. did you ever have to go to court where if you would make a pinch, arrest somebody uh, for on a body or on some drugs? The drugs were gone or the cash was gone out of the documentation? Yes. Oh that happened a lot. Yeah. So would you show up like excited to make, no, I mean, like not, help make a prosecution? It's, it's, and it's, then you never show up excited to any 
federal anything in Mexico. Okay. So you show up and you, you're obligated to show up in some of these things, yeah. you know, or else you're, you're subject to arrest if you don't show up yeah. to some of these things. So I remember showing up to one where it was clear that there was a lot of money involved and it was stated in the documentation. Yeah. And then I was told several times that that money wasn't in the documentation and that we shouldn't talk about that because it wasn't relevant to anything that we were talking about there. How much money was it? You remember? A lot. At 300 grand. Gone. And then do you remember, do you remember a judge dismissing a case or letting something go that was obviously yeah, yeah. prosecutable? Constantly. Constantly. Wow. constantly. And is that, is there a, a Tijuana political elite that is, uh, it was a state level thing. So it's a Baja. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's a Baja political elite. Is there a political elite that, and clearly, you know, from judges to lawyers to yes, politicians that operate on the surface as legitimate characters, but they're all dirty. They all go to the same country club. Is that like a, is that a myth or is that pretty much how it goes? Uh, it's, it's, it's not, it's, that's not where, that's not where the power lies, I guess. Uh, so with some of these judges, uh, you, you have to realize there's three levels in Mexico. So local, state, and federal. So depending on the issue you're facing, if it's something related to firearms or drugs of a large quantity, mm -hmm. that's a federal thing. Yeah. And these judges aren't appointed by the local anything. These guys are appointed by Mexico. Yeah. Like this, this Mexico City, basically, yeah. the capital. Right. So they come in with interests of their own. Oh. So it's chill. So they're even less... Uh, loyal. Yeah. And also they'll, they'll just leave after they're done. So, oh, so they like fly in. If there's no, like a federal no, case I mean, they'll, they'll be there for a while yeah. and then they'll leave. Yeah. And they'll be reassigned somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So it's, 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 uh, the corruption is, is everywhere. Also, an, another reason why cops, like being a cop in Mexico sucks. Do you think that my office sent me along to the, some, some of these processes? with my own legal representation I, I you would be lucky <laughs> you would be lucky if you had somebody with you from your legal department right sometimes we would show up there alone when yeah. i say alone i mean with our guys outside taking care of us if yeah. something happened but we were there alone talking to some of these you know yeah so it's you talk about the levels of this and how complex it is mm -hmm. and how bad it is. And also realize this while I was in the legal system changed in Mexico. How so? It became, uh, they, they call it, uh, basically it became more like the U S where there's a judge and a jury and there's, there's a, like it, it turned into that later oh, on a little bit more. It became a bit more streamlined and professional. you, actually had to write a ton of documentation for a single arrest now, which hampered even things even more uh, because there's more paperwork involved. So imagine this. I came out of, I came out of the Academy at 21. I had to teach myself how to write some of the documentation and, and how to write some of the reports for myself. And yeah. all of a sudden I learned this from people that were there old, older than I was that were part of this old uh, legal system. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I'm midway there and I'm basically have to learn this new legal system that's going to be about to be adopted. And I have to learn all the protocols, paperwork, and all the ways that I have to now process a detainee, an object that the detainee had, or 
witness interviews and basically all of us had to go through retraining. I had to go back to the academy for about six, for about three months. What year was that? So 2012-ish era, I think. Okay, 13. so what year did you really see the war start to turn and what eventually, how did that resolve itself? Yeah. Who uh, won? Yeah. <laughs> what happened? And when did the bodies yeah. start to, when did the murders start to go down? When did everything start to calm down? So, what year? so my, my part of the war was, was Baja specifically. So you saw, you saw a municipal police uh, that was cleansed, not completely, but it was cleansed. Yeah. Uh, you saw a actual effective municipal local police force responding to things again. You saw a diminished and weakened cartel uh, uh, presence in in Baja, because now they were not only re, uh, afraid of the military, of the police, of the cops, of municipal police showing up to something, but now they were worried about us, the army, mm -hmm. and the federal police showing up as well. And you can pay one of them off, but not all of them off. Right. Nobody's that rich. Yeah. So things started to change. Yeah. Um, eventually, they arrested the the main guy that was causing all these Who issues. Who was it? Uh, El Teo. The, the Tres Letras, they used to call him. They arrested him in Baja Sur. Okay. He was, he was hiding out there. Uh. And... This is a story that as I recently heard this part of the story from Lisa Ola himself. Um, he got to see his interview, his arrest interview. And he mentions that the reason why he was living in Baja Sur is because Tijuana became too dangerous for them. And the danger was made by us. <laughs> right. So that's why, that's why they left. Wow. So, um, that changed things. Uh, I think what probably happened is that that part of his, that part of the conflict in their ultra violent efforts, because mm -hmm. they had no issues, was changed by another more discreet organized, organized crime element that came in behind them. Mm. And they, they quieted things down basically because it was bad for business mm. across the board. So there was right. some sort of weird yeah, it's hard to keep up that level of violence for, for too long. Yeah. Do you think the cartels have been weakened by marijuana becoming legal in the U.S.? Not at all. Really? Okay. Uh, not so at all. This is, not at this all. is an exclusive because that's what we all assumed, including myself. You know, the, the idea was let's make drugs legal in the U.S. or as legal as possible, and that will eliminate the cartels in Mexico. Well. It did. It did kill a lot of their business. You know, sixty percent of the we, sixty percent of their revenues in drugs were from but what, U.S. What, marijuana sales. But what did those fields now? What do those fields now contain? I don't know, Poppy. They just they they switch crops. They not only switch crops, but you think they they don't make more money off a a poppy field with fentanyl laced uh, heroin than a brick of marijuana back then. Sure, but less people consume, far less people consume fentanyl most, than most heroin. Of the, most of, most of these criminal organizations were already involved in illegal marijuana manufacturing and packaging and sales in the U.S. before the legalization happened. Uh -huh. So when the legalization happened, I imagine that some of these people were already in the kitchen cooking up the legal side of it as well. Right. So, no. 
It didn't affect them at all. Not on our side. When we saw the legalization aspect of it, mm-hmm. all we saw was a shift. Mm. Mar- uh, uh, poppy fields are now the thing. Uh, and Tell fe- us about those. F- f- you said they're heroin. They're growing fentanyl-laced heroin. No, no, no. They're not growing fentanyl. they do that? They're growing heroin. Yeah. They're growing poppy fields, basically. Right. Some of these classic historical marijuana rich places where they would grow some of these uh plants then put them in bricks press them cross the uh cross the gulf of baja yeah you know you, you, I, I, i'm preaching too yeah cross the cross the sea uh, of cortez, sea of cortez mm-hmm. um get put on cars mm-hmm. all the way up uh that that pipeline is still there but now it's guns going down and other things coming up in that pipeline when the legalization happened on our end, we noticed weed coming down and heroin coming up. And we were weirded about about we were weird out about the heroin because heroin's always been a thing in Mexico. It's always been there. Uh, but I remember the first time I saw heroin. Uh, it was in uh, La Libertad, Colonia Libertad. Um, it's, a, it's a neighborhood right on the border. I walked into this room and I smelled it before I saw it. If you ever smelled like black tar heroin, it's a very memorable smell. I mean, I remember the smell of it just from junkies yeah. sweating it out. Yeah. That's how pungent it is. There was a, it was a ball about that big that mm. was in the middle of a table. It was being, you know, pinched off. And so I remember that smell. This wasn't like this, 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 uh, this heroin that we were seeing now was not like that. It was, a. Uh, light brown color powdery uh heroin and um it's just different you know um we started seeing uh what we were confusing with meth or meth precursors and then people just interested in the fact that there's this new thing called fentanyl and we didn't know anything about it you know we just vague uh you know drawings of uh all the molecule looks, you know, uh, site exploitation that we got to see from certain places. There was a place that actually cooked it in in Mexico. That was one of the first fentanyl uh, fabrication spaces that they found in Mexico. Um, Where uh, was that in Mexico? I think I think it was around some of the pharmaceutical industry in Mexico. That was so like on the east side. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it, it was, there was the, there was a there was a moment in time in like around this time where marijuana legalization happened and this whole change was happening, uh, where it started to be very apparent that the ways that people were manufacturing meth at a industrial scale in Mexico mm-hmm. was because they were utilizing legal channels that are related to a pharmaceutical industry in Mexico to basically bring in everything they would need and just cook it in. Mm-hmm. within the pharmaceutical industry. Right. So they weren't, they weren't, uh, they weren't being that clandestine at that time. And they had, you know, a lot of connections to China. That's how we first started to see that some of those connections, uh, the, the high level arrest of a uh, businessman, uh, Sen Lee Jae Gong that had like hundred million dollars at his house in mm-hmm. Mexico city, who was related to some of these pharmaceutical right. practices and industry. Yeah, he was like a Mexican Chinese. Yeah. Chinese Mexican. Yeah. And he was like, Hey, give me my money back. And they, uh-huh. they didn't give that money back a hundred million dollars. So were they actually, were the cartels actually experimenting with fentanyl sales before that 
they they opened up a, an American market that, for that's, it. That's 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 the that's the stories that we've heard. Like certain drug markets uh, on the northern part of this of the country, uh, infusing the the this low quality heroin that they were trying to figure out if they could sell. Uh, I'm not sure where the idea came from. I've heard stories of Chinese chemists, you know, figuring mm-hmm. things out and and fentanyl already being a thing in and of itself by its own. Yeah. And somebody saying peanut butter and jelly. You yeah. know, somebody at some point said that. Yeah. Uh, there's this, uh, and again, these are hearsay things. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything of, uh, as a fact, but this, these are things I hear from colleagues and people that are still working down there of this uh, homeless population situation that they had somewhere down there. And uh, a, a certain criminal organization basically utilizing fentanyl to eliminate the homeless population down there. They lowered the yield, they lowered the potency of a single yield for a month. Of heroin. Of heroin. Yeah. Because they would lace it with fentanyl. Right. And then they kicked it up. Yeah. And basically OD, overdosed everybody in that Make space. everybody's tolerance go down and then kick the potency. This yeah. is something I've heard. Like, this is like some scary stories on the campfire. It. I believe it. Yeah. And that's the first time I heard about fentanyl, mm-hmm. you know? Um, what we saw is after marijuana legalization is that these guys were already, they're ready for it already. Right. They saw within it an opportunity to launder money, mm-hmm. something we've seen recently in places like Colorado. Of course. Which, of course. <laughs> which is fascinating. It only makes sense though. So I know they were ready for that legalization mm-hmm. or like they were... So it didn't, I don't, I don't see it yeah. as any sort of uh, catastrophic thing right. for, and if we're talking about that period, the main cartel back then was in the Sinaloa Federation of Cartels, right. I guess, Sinaloa Cartel. It didn't hit, it didn't hurt them. I, so, I don't see. So then what is the situation with the cartels? Are they, are they weakened? Are they stronger or are they the same as they were a generation ago, 15 years ago during the big wars? I think you're, I think you're, what you're seeing now, you know, we're seeing El Mayo Zambada of the Sinaloa cartel operating all the way into Chiapas to fight the new generation cartel. Right. So these guys are moving across the map. Uh, So you're seeing these two large organizations and I think that's where we're heading towards. Just to- You think it's going back- Oh, you think it's just going to become two organizations? I think it's going to become two organizations that are controlling the border. Yeah. And when this happens, that's when the U.S. needs to figure it out. Hmm. That I know of, and people can correct me out there, there's no large segment of the border wall that is controlled by the new generation cartel right now. There's fights and skirmishes happening on the eastern part of the border wall in Tijuana. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And people need to realize that that is probably related to some sort of push for control of the area by the new generation cartel. Uh-huh. But once the new generation cartel has a corridor into the United States, like controls a major segment of that border wall, just like Sinaloa does now, that means that their next fight is going to be up here. It's not going to be up down there anymore. Now they're going to be fighting for a market up here because now they have a corridor and now they have a pipeline competitor to Sinaloa here. Mm. That's what's coming. 
All right. Interesting. This is different than our friend Luis Chaparro, good friend of the show. We oh, respect his work. He's great. Uh, he's great. He has a different take. He thinks his, his theory is that uh, the cartel only fights up to that wall. And then everything that happens on our side, on state side, is all loose, independent networks. A lot of white guys, a lot of Americans or Mexican-Americans, uh, but nobody's on payroll anymore. Yeah. You know, everything has been decentralized. And kind of what you're saying is the opposite. I don't know. For me, th th so this is, he, he's, he's saying that there's nobody fighting up here. It's true. But there will be. The thing is, this is, this is the thing I think uh, that I'm, it's a, it's a forecast. We, we had a operation on Akana happening here in the States and arrested about 80 members of the cartel, the CJNE, the new generation cartel. So they're here. So saying that they're not here is wrong. Um, the people that are operating up here, from my perception of what I see, uh, second generation, third generation, Mexican-American, some of them. Uh, yeah, people, white people. You know, mm -hmm. people in politics as well. You know, there's a lot of that in there. And in, in, in the States too, mm -hmm. if you look deep enough. Um, what I'm saying is that these, Sinaloa definitely has a presence in the States. Go to Chicago, go to the Garment District in LA. Yeah. You know, go to a few places mm -hmm. here in the States and tell me that they're not here. Mm. You know, they don't do things overtly in the United States like they do in Mexico. Right. And even in Mexico, they're very restrained. They try and be. Yeah. That's not the, that's not the new generation cartel. Right. You know, what I'm saying is that they will eventually make it up to the border wall, which they already are there. Mm -hmm. Gain control over a large section of it. Now that they have control over a large section of it, it means that they have an, a large pipeline of substances now coming into the States mm -hmm. that they control. And who are they? And who are they going to compete with? You know, and yeah. that's when you start seeing the violence up here. I'm not saying that the cartel is going to, the Sinaloa cartel is going to roll up with a convoy here, and yeah. But you're you're going to start seeing elements that are very familiar of cartel on cartel warfare and violence that right. happened down there. Right. You're going to start seeing some of that stuff up here. That's my theory. I don't know. I might be wrong. What's life like for you now? And what were some of the when you left the force, when you were forced to leave, what were like some of the hardest parts about becoming a civilian? Well, I mean, I was, most of us were pushed out. Yeah. Um, I didn't have a lot of choices. So at that point I had a two-year-old mm. and a path to citizenship. How? And, uh, her mom's American okay. and she's American too. Oh, nice. So I was trying to figure that out, mm -hmm. but realistically it wasn't in my, no. Yeah. Um, changes happened down there. A lot of, a lot of the people that were fired got back and it was a show. All the white people or the, the Americans, San Diegans moving down to Tijuana for cost of living. Uh, we all know that's driving cost of living up in TJ. Will that do anything to change uh, some of the violence or the the politics? It's 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 uh it's back. It's so bad violence wise right now in Mexico. And again, it's a perception. People feel unsafe in Mex in Tijuana right now. It's so bad that they're calling my former boss back, and he's about <laughs> to run for mayor. Wow, 
That's how bad it is. Wow. He, we had, he had a security conference and I was there for the security conference. And he was like, yeah, if you wanted to bring the bag, we can bring the band back together. Basically he said, you know, um, <laughs> do you think he'll go back? I, I, I don't think I would. There's better money in the private sector, you know? I just want to, I just want to, just want peace of mind in life, I guess. Um, when I left that, uh, when I left that job, I, I didn't have a plan, you know? Also, there's no retirement in police work in Mexico that I know of. So another reason why you should be a cop oh in Mexico. God, dude. Um, so, and, and also they owe me my, my liquidation money. They what, haven't paid me. What is liquidation? I mean, basically, if you if you leave that job, they'll they'll give you like a por like a portion of money. Oh, like severance leave, pay. Like severance. Okay. They haven't to this day. <laughs> I'm waiting. I'm waiting for my severance pay. <laughs> but um, so that stopped, and I had to look for options. So I I crossed the border, uh, mm -hmm. and I figured my out. Yeah, I think. Number one is the uh, learning about words that I didn't know about in the States. So when I first moved to the States, I was living around Camp Pendleton. Uh. So most of my weird ass friends were, you know, Marines. I was living with a Navy SEAL. Like my, my host family in the States uh, was a Navy SEAL, a Navy SEAL uh, guy named uh, Dan Stanchfield. Amazing guy. His wife, Kelly. Uh, so I was like, learning about words like PTSD from these people or TBIs or alcoholism mm. <laughs> <laughs> or depression. Yeah. Um, uh, so I started figuring out that a lot of the issues that I had weren't, uh, weren't normal, I guess. My alcoholism started being glaringly apparent to mm. me because now it was a, I was in a place where people don't get blacked out drunk every time they go drinking. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm in the States now, I guess. Um, At least they don't get in their car afterwards, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we, we, do, we do a lot of that in Mexico. Um, so I started figuring things out about my issues, uh, specifically mental issues. Right. You know, uh, there's no therapist down there. PTSD doesn't exist. I didn't know about PTSD or anything like that. Uh, and they give you no support, I assume, mental health wise uh, as a cop. I, 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 uh, I went through a prison riot, the uh, second prison riot in Tijuana. It's a pretty bad one. I was part of the group that, that went there to pacify it. Uh, it was horrible. It was a horrible thing that we responded to. And you, after you that. You mind telling us a little bit? Of uh, cartels were fighting on the outside and they had people on the inside and they wanted to figure out if they could break them out. So they started a riot inside of the prison. This is a prison that is in the center of Tijuana, basically. So if they, as soon as they break out, there's houses there. So every single cop in Baja responded to that, I guess. Uh, there's people shooting from the inside out. Somehow they gained firearms, executed a bunch of people inside. It was a, it was a show. And you saw those bodies? Yeah, so I saw them playing soccer with a head in the in that uh, football field uh they had the football space they had inside uh they burned a bunch of the rivals in the middle of that place you could smell the bodies all the when you were driving there it was it was a bad time yeah it's something you see in baghdad or, it was a bad or, you time. know any any wartime when i when we when we went back to the office after that 
who was the guy who was in charge that just pulled out a six pack. And that was the therapy. And that was the therapy, sure. And most of these events that happened like that was like, hey, get, take a few days off. And somebody was put in charge to grab you and take you out drinking. <laughs> that was like the official the chaperone, chaperone. guideline. It's also that and also suicide watch. So you would always, if you had somebody went through some, mm. you would have somebody, a buddy system, you would attach into them. So you take him out to get face drunk. Right. And get his hand, hand off. Yeah. And take his gun when he's drunk so right. he doesn't shoot himself. Did that happen? A, a ton of times. Did you know guys that killed themselves? The suicide was very prevalent in my life. Again, you've heard me describe yeah. police work in Mexico yeah, so you can course. see why that, uh, I learned about all of that, but I didn't know that it was like, uh, oh, this is not how it works everywhere. Yeah. So like, it dawned on me how abnormal my life was yeah. up here. So yeah. I started figuring it out, you know, processing it, mm -hmm. writing some of that down. Yeah. Uh, at this point, I had a weird nameless, faceless Tumblr account that turned into a Facebook account and then turned into an Instagram account where I was posting pictures and lessons learned and just weird stuff about my experiences mm -hmm. in Mexico. And it had already had a weird cult following. Right. Right. So when it came to the States, I had that already there. Oh, is that, and did Rogan see that? You got, yeah. you were on Joe Rogan before the years ago, before the yeah. pandemic. Yes. Uh, three years ago. Uh, yeah, he was a fan of the Instagram account. So I I have a, a bunch of WhatsApp groups that I'm a part of, of people that are still active in Mexico. So they send me the wildest, like the Dude, wildest. That like, is gold. Yeah. You like, could so, charge people money just to watch that. Well, uh, I'd probably pay a <laughs> monthly subscription just to see what you get sent. Uh, so we put, I started putting some of those videos up and, uh, and he started liking him some, some of them, you know. Yeah. Um, it, it caught it caught his attention. Uh, it caught a few people's attention. I, I've uh, news. I've, I've talked. I've, I've com commented on the news. Quoted a bunch of news agencies mm -hmm. a bunch of times. Uh, and started realizing that oh, in my mind I was kind of come to the U.S. and remake myself, and turn myself into like a, I don't know, man, a yoga instructor. Yeah. I don't know. Sure. You some something. And then it's then that it dawned on me that uh, my experience is what is of value. Yeah. So I had to relive those horrible experiences over and over again, basically, as a, as a way to make a living through the training that I do, the commentary, talking about some of these things. Yeah. So it's been complex on my end. Yeah. You know? uh, Has so anyone ever tried you? Every, any old, like since you retired from the force, you never... You never got an attempt on your life? I I was never, again, I never played a side. You never played a side. Number one, most of the threats that are out there now probably stem from people that I used to work with. So I'm not worried about any of them, you know? Mm. And also, I'm not doing anything. Right. Uh, anything I speak, speak about or talk about on any of these interviews or podcasts isn't anything secret and or, you know, that nobody knows, you know, I'm not going to reveal any sort of sensitive information. I'm just giving an opinion on how I see things. Um, I know for a fact that some of them watch these, yeah. you know, do you have any, are there any active cartel members in TJ that know you or like reach out to try to like, I, I, I don't, don't I, I don't have, a, I don't have any lines of communication that are direct to me because I don't want to, 
I don't want to be involved in any of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I'm not a cartel reporter. Yeah, you know? yeah. I have we have a news news agency in Tijuana and in, in Mexico specifically that we work with directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Demoler is the name of the news agency. Uh, it's an English news agency that that reports from Mexico on cartel wow. situations. Um, so if anything of that nature that goes to them, mm-hmm. so I'm, again, I'm not involved in any of that. And yeah, it's a wor- it's a it's a worry. Uh, I've had it, but most of the negativity I've gotten, you know, of the issues that I've gotten has been from Americans who are either offended by the way that I describe my home country, yeah, which is kind of hilarious, uh, or that don't uh, see me as trustworthy or shady because I was a cop in Mexico. Right. And I'm like, yeah. Defund the police. <laughs> Trust it's, me, they're defunded. It's a it's a mixture of defund the police and uh and just hate, man. It's it's uh anybody anybody from Mexico will tell you this. The worst enemy of Mexican is gonna be another Mexican. Mm-hmm. We can't see each other to succeed up here. So most of the threats that I've gotten, most of that negativity I've gotten has been from yeah. you know, fellow fellow mm-hmm. Mexicans up here trying to figure their their lives out and yeah. That's most of it for me. What do you, where does such a loaded question? Um, so to wrap, it sounds like Tijuana in some ways is better than it used to be. And in some ways is even worse. Yeah. It sounds like one half is like, uh, you know, the Zona Roja downtown is like, it's nicer than ever. Yeah. I mean, you could just walk around there. You know, there's, it's like, I, I feel no, I feel no fear when I'm down yeah. there. Uh, a bunch of Americans live there, you know, a bunch of remote workers. Great. They, great. they built that new park right by the border wall, like by the ocean, yeah. you know? Um, and then the dark side, but like the darkness is always there. Yeah. What do you, where do you think it goes in the next two years, two to five years? Morena doesn't have a political rival. So I think we're on a straight path. So whatever's happening now is going to get consistently. Ah, okay. Whatever that is. Mm -hmm. Um, There is, Baja has always been like like a beacon of change across Mexico. We had the first uh, governor that was from a rival political party in the history of Mexico in Baja. That was the first time that somebody was elected that was counter to the PRI party in Mexico. Oh, interesting. Right. So Baja is a place where it has a tendency to influence change. Yeah. It's probably because it's right next to San Diego and California. Right. Which is the beginning of the change in America. It all yeah. starts on the, on yeah. the left. So there's something coast. about, something about that. And if you can see some of the things that are happening now, we have a mayor in Tijuana who is hiding in the military and the army barracks right now because he has safety issues and concerns. Meanwhile, the, People in Tijuana are like, we can't hide in the military barracks. Right. Why are you there? Mm-hmm. Her head of security, former under investigation cartel associate, apparently. Uh, so she basically brought a bunch of the people back that were let were, were arrested or under investigation by Lisa Ola. And uh, she's, she says that she had an, uh, an attempt on her life, which nobody knows anything about. Mm. And a lot of people are basically saying the attempt was on your security staff, not on you. That's what people are kind of right. saying. I'm not sure about it. Um, 
but that's who we have as a mayor in Tijuana right now. And she's part of the Morena party. And since security is such a big issue, it's going to be a big issue mm -hmm. politically in the yeah. coming elections. There's no other name out there in Mexico that has the power of Lizaola when it comes to security. And he's yeah. done it before. So uh, that's going to be very disruptive if he goes in, if he comes right. into power. Right. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, uh, when I say disruptive, I mean, he's, he's, he has a tendency to change things. And yeah. that, those changes usually usually uh bring with them some some turbulence yeah yeah it sounds like it could be it's almost history repeating itself you know it uh history this is something that he told me that history doesn't repeat itself but it oftentimes rhymes yeah you know? for sure um, for sure uh, the the tools are different now you know mm -hmm. back when we were active and did our thing nobody and we didn't have to worry about everybody being a camera yeah so right. that's going to be a factor now some of the that we did, you know, we can get away with that mm -hmm. now with everybody having a camera on. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be an issue. Uh, legislation and legal systems have changed now. So a lot of the freedoms he had back then are gone now because they've been legislated over and over again. And mm -hmm. like all these things are now in place. Um, he's going to be an enemy of the political class that is ruling the country right now if he goes against them. Wow. So. Sounds like a populist. Populism's, it's, it's all the rage you know from trump to to rfk i think i think mexico has gone through five years of left mm -hmm. and it's i think in the next few years it's going to grab the, the steering wheel and it's probably going to do an argentina wow and we're going to go all yeah. the way to the right at some point maybe yeah well whatever works you got to try <laughs> something man <laughs> yeah um i'm hopeful good i'm hopeful Mexico has so much potential as a country. Yeah. And yeah. there's a saying in Mexico, so so far from God, but close to the United States. <laughs> um, we are tied in many ways as a country to the United States by blood. Mm -hmm. You know, when it's Christmas time in Tijuana, that's how you know that Mexico and the U.S. are not, you know, they're not separate, you no. know. All the American families down there visiting their abuelas and their tios. Mm -hmm. You just realize that we're, this is a this is one big group of people. Mm -hmm. And I understand that there is a need for separation and a political need for separation and building walls and, and borders and all that. It, it, it's needed. You know, it's a safety feature for some people. And I get it. I, it's understandable. Um as a region and as a country, the United States needs Mexico for what's coming. Yeah. A dwindling China, a bunch of enemies abroad. Mm -hmm. You know, Europe is about to kick it maybe at some point. Yeah. So we're going to have to focus clear and near. I agree. China is, the next China is probably going to be Mexico. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So that's why people should be paying a lot of attention to what's happening on that border. What's happening in Mexico politically. Yeah. And, uh, what their tax dollars are doing in Mexico. Because to this day, American tax dollars are being utilized to pay for vehicles, gasoline, uh, weapons, mm -hmm. programs related to fighting cartels in Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, What's the solution, Ed? Do you make drugs legal? Like full legalization? Some version of it. Where? Here in the States? Both countries. Uh, Mexico has absolutely not even 
the outline of a medical or welfare system of any kind that would be able to handle sustain that uh full legalization uh-huh we would basically have to set up open air grave sites i guess for people dying in a in a long while i guess yeah we just we're just not made we, we don't have that mm-hmm. so but i'm not an enemy of full legalization you know i'm i'm i'm, I'm really big uh, um really big supporter of personal responsibility but i i i whatever whatever killing blow we thought that full legalization would have on criminal organizations is gone they're diverse it's just they're diversified yeah they've been diversified for years they're into legitimate business Mm -hmm. they're into real estates on both sides of the border Mm -hmm. they're into uh they're into mining yeah gas gas stealing gas from yeah they're into you name it they're into it protection rackets Mm -hmm. they're into it man um so i i whatever whatever full legalization would do Mm -hmm. i don't think i don't think it's uh i don't think it's even uh anything that's gonna change a lot i mean yeah like we where's full legalization worked before portugal countries yeah portugal Portugal, uh switzerland there was a big heroin problem in switzerland and so they the government gives it out none none of these countries are mexico no (laughs) (laughs) none of these countries are mexico and none of these countries are have the uh the problems that mexico has yeah and that's going to add i don't know man uh there is there are interests on the U.S. side that want to keep those drugs illicit. You mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm. There are people making and companies making a ton of money from this drug war yeah. going on. Uh, there are new things on the horizon when it comes to drugs, you know, um, such as uh, now. I mean, we're talking about uh, pill presses being the new norm uh, when when it comes to some of the. Uh, safe houses being found down south. Oh, right. Like uh, for, for synthetics. Yeah. So you're fentanyl man, and I mean, yeah. why, why would you have to have a drug tunnel when you can, you know, smuggle a ton of stuff in your purse? Yeah. In right. the form of a pill. You know, I think we're moving towards that. And also like it used to be that you would find a joint on the ground. You'd be happy about it. Those days are gone yeah. now. Yeah. Um, so there's, it's, it's, it's this weird new paranoid drug culture yeah. that we're, they were kind of like seeing, uh, seeing, uh, being brought up and these kamikaze, uh, users who are there just to burn out. Yeah. Quickly. I don't get it. So I don't understand I don't how, know what the end game is for the market. So for me, I think the, the, what's coming is what's going to happen when legit this starts killing the market. What are they going to do next? You know? We've been asking that question and we can't get an answer except that it's worth it now because they're just making so much money off of it. They can't stop. Well, what's going to happen next? And usually this is what happens. uh, When you have an organization like that, that grows directly related to the sale and distribution of a substance like that or an activity, Mm -hmm. you know, we saw this in in organizations that were specifically uh, tied to abduction for ransom. Mm -hmm. When that ends, and the guy at the top can't pay the guys at the bottom. The guys at the bottom break off and go independent. Which they've already done so much of that it's like, how much more can it splinter, you know? know. Well, maybe it kills all the drug addicts. Maybe people stop taking drugs because they die. Well, I think we're, we're, we're inching. If you, if you look at social media, Mm -hmm. if you look at TikTok, if you look at a lot of stories online, you know, people are, 
scared. You know, if yeah. if you want to talk about all that, uh, don't use to scruff McGruff bullshit yeah. that they yeah. had in the eighties and all that stuff. That didn't give kids off drugs. That's because drugs were that fun. I though. know, but now this is this is the best counter drug. All uh, totally the propaganda out there. Just if you use death. anything, you could die. Just death. Like, yeah, like just, very high probability. Just of a little bump of cocaine, fentanyl. Yeah, just a little yeah. this pill, fentanyl. Hey, just this fentanyl. So in a roundabout way, the cartels could be cleaning up the country. They could be eliminating drugs. Uh, and, uh, they're eliminating a vast amount of the youth of this country. Mm -hmm. And that, I think the 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 loss of the generation of young people in this country from fentanyl is not going to be felt until until, until we get into a period when we see this massive hole in our yeah like where are all the people from this generation you mm -hmm. know where are all the innovations from these guys you yeah. know why aren't these guys starting a band like the doors and right. singing about the end they're dead that's why mm -hmm. because this, this is a dead end drug i guess yeah um well ed uh we're gonna cut it off there because we could go all day <laughs> and it was a great time dude i'm really you. honored to have you where can they find you uh what would you like to plug sure uh a few things i would want to plug and, please um so if 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 people want to find out more just follow along uh we have uh, a website called www.edsmanifesto.com mm -hmm. that's where people can find uh, a little bit about all the stuff we do uh, we have a charity we support a bunch of up-and-coming fighters in mexico uh, out of a gym in tulum nice. uh, so we feed them basically uh, two times a day oh wow uh, we do classes all over the country and all over mexico related to counter abduction mm. personal safety and how to figure how to take responsibility for your own you know, yeah. situation uh, and also, uh, we basically talk about a lot of these issues, uh, with different people that survived that fought it. You know, yeah. we just had a, a guy that was in the California penal system, uh, on the podcast and we talked a little bit about some of those issues. Nice. Um, so if people want to find out more, just go to www.edsmanifesto.com or follow us on Ed's Manif on uh, Manifesto Radio Podcast on Instagram. And then which uh, your podcast is on your website too? Yeah, Manifesto okay. Radio Podcast on okay. YouTube, and uh, you can find us on Instagram as well. Um, uh, before this go, before like I cut it off, um, I've been up here for a few years now mm -hmm. in the states. I love this country a lot. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't want to be in any other, in any other place. I don't like the politics here, you know. Um, I could joke around with it uh, that I can't vote at the moment. But I will at some point in the next year, uh, once I go through my process. Uh, I think there is hope. I'm not a fear monger that everything's bad mm -hmm. and it's going to go to hell. Uh, but I think it needs dialogue. It needs voices like my own of people that are actually in the fight down there, mm -hmm. uh, being included in some of these conversations. Uh, the problems have been the problems that are down there have been made by years of abuse of the people that are in power down there. Yeah. that have taken advantage of their positions of power to set up corruption networks that span the border mm -hmm. um, uh, that involved trafficking of people, of children, of women, of drugs. And some of these people are still in power down there. When I got started in 2004, 
the government's answer to organized crime was putting a bunch of people like myself in the back of a truck and having them patrol a city to see if they could find somebody, you know? That was 2004. I just went back down there to train a group of people who were basically are the version of who we were now. Mm -hmm. And what do you think they're doing? The same thing. Rolling around on the back of a- Nothing. Oh, but it's an electric truck. It's a, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a green it has, vehicle. It has better gas mileage and a little <laughs> green leaf on the side of it, but they're doing the same thing and, and we're paying for it with our taxes. Yeah. So the US, the Americans should like be very adamant about demanding what, what that money is doing down there and what it is. How are our tax dollars funding them? So there's a thing called uh, Plan Merida, which is like a binational uh, bi uh, security agreement between Mexico and the United States, where it basically uh, hires the Mexican government to fight its drug war for it uh, on the other side of the border. Kind of the way that uh, it's the U.S. is using the Mexican uh, Guardia Nacional to patrol its borders. You know? Oh, okay. So it's essentially like a military aid package. You're outsourcing your drug war to the Mexi to Mexico, and I don't see a lot of people going down there with a fine-tooth comb to see where that money's no, going. And no. also the fact that, hey, we're paying for this effort for things to change, and this is the worst year when it comes to violence and trafficking in history. Wow. How is that possible? Yeah. It's questions, I guess. Graft. Questions. Hell yeah. All right, Ed. Thank you for uh, the man. Thank you for You're having the me. Man. It's a lot to chew on. Thanks, guys. Take care.